All right. That's a, that's a wrap. Um, there is a bunch of chats in the... You were answering tons of good questions in the chat, Lee, that I feel like we should like recap on audio so that the thousands of yeah. people that listen to the show can actually benefit Take from that from, instead of like the couple dozen in the, the live chat. If, if you'd I, like to. Oh, Dan I don't Freeman know. Just, I just follow like... me on Instagram. Hmm? Thanks for the follow, Dan. Is Dan Dan Friedman? Are you still Are you still in the chat? I, I just want to clarify. Uh, mine must be lagging. Mine must be lagging. Last thing I have from anybody other than me is Twitch sucks. Kreskin, Dan Friedman. Okay. Hey, so what'd you say? Like, there's something I said you d- you didn't you didn't like in the episode that came out today. I just want to clarify, make sure what's what's up. What episode came out today? I, I've lost track of everything. Who knows, man? Who That's knows? what happened. I actually got ahead on episodes, so like I edited it and uploaded that to the server, I think, a month ago. Yeah. It's the Dude, one with Ryan. The, the constant speed. The after chat conversation oh. with Ryan Eckel. Okay. Came out today, I think, if I remember the correctly. Eckel finish up. Hey, we got 14 minutes, Scott. Okay. Man, okay. This is... The post episode chats are like the best. Oh yeah. yeah. And I, I think, was you know, because you you have this veil of like this weight on you lifted, so it's like more organic and natural. You don't feel I, like you need to be I didn't you know, realize there was a difference between the two. Yeah, yeah the echo I've never, I've never really paid attention to that. Yeah, over there in yeah, Ukraine, there. you probably wouldn't. Yeah. You know, you're on the other yeah, side of the, the space station. station. <laughs> it's so hard to jump. Elon, I apologize Elon for not talking tonight, but it's like I can't even get in here because it's like impossible because nobody can hear me. It's like, yeah. By the time I start, well, between Elon, Tyler and I steamrolling well, everything. Yeah, by by yeah, the time yeah, I start talking, by the time I'm talking, like you guys are already like a whole sentence ahead of me. So it's like, it's just no point. <laughs> Elon yeah. activated Starlink over Ukraine, Scott. You should be able to yeah, get it. Yeah, I now. know. But, it, you know, sound only moves at the. You know, the radio frequency only moves at the speed of light. So by the time it gets over here, it still takes it a few seconds. You know, oh, right? man. Isn't that true? Yeah. Is that true? I don't know. I feel like... Eastern European woes. Yeah, um, yeah. Just over here. I was listening to that episode today on the way to lunch in this morning. And you guys were trying to work out what IRA was. It was pretty funny. What um, IRA was? And Rob was persisting that it was... Uh, in, in, yeah. Yeah, it's an investment vehicle. Account. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what what is it? Oh, instrument rating airplane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not something that, like I've never used that. Yeah, acronym whatever it is for that ever. That portion of that because I just listened to it. I I heard it live weeks ago anyway, but it's fun to re-listen because I miss stuff when I'm working or something. Because um, you guys usually do these live streams when I'm working, but. West Long Coast story problems. short, yeah, <laughs> I had to scramble to assemble this. Like, I almost want to show you where I am. I'm in the corner of my bedroom to get away from everyone so that I'm not occluding them from like living their lives. Because last time we did the helicopter episode, it was like close to three hours and just blah blah blah. And I was in the office. People needed to get to me or do things or that, and like now I'm away from everyone. So helps with the noise too. Because I I joined Leon like one after live stream and. My kids are playing, dropping drumsticks in the other room with the hardwood floors, and I remember editing so, that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Is like I black out when I talk, so I don't remember that. And then I get to a point where I'm drinking six beers, and then I don't remember much of that either. Dan's talking about stuff I don't even remember talking about it. Yeah, 
And so I'm very, I'm honestly more concerned than I've ever been about my alcohol. Intake Scott and Lee, you guys need to watch the Rumble videos. I have I post the full unedited live stream on, on Rumble. Rumble. You can really okay. learn a lot about your mic techniques and and that. I sort feel of like thing. my I, I feel like know, my mic technique is top notch. At this point right I now. feel like my mic technique is. <laughs> I feel like I could do a class on how people should Just use. Blow the out the equalizer on my board here right now. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, so loud. Replace that fuse because, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that came in really, really pretty Woo! hot there, Scott. Yeah, I need a cigarette <laughs> after that. Yeah. Oh man. Um. So, like, all right. So, yeah. There's things I don't remember, anyways. But like, immediately after we recorded that, I'm like, why did I say that? Why did my filter? And my filter does not come off for, for in the. I think the big grand scheme but like there are things like i just divulge just like why would i tell a bunch of people i do not know thousands of people i do not know why would i say that yeah why would i say that out loud i try to be like a truthful person but like i should probably just not be so forthcoming with information but it is an aviation podcast so yeah. I guess i don't know that occasionally talks about flying yeah some yeah. that occasionally talks about flying we talked a lot about flying today that's good. So, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Um, do we have? I mean, or you can dive, we go? You dive in the chat. T- uh, t- this is kind of selfish, a little bit, but maybe the audience will think it's interesting. Walk me through because I've never done like a a seaplane beaching. Like, what is the actual process of that? We, we didn't. Really it was a lot less complicated than I thought. Okay, you just pretty much drive towards it. You get kind of an idle, you know, RPM, and you're just checking out obvious obstructions like is this huge log going to come out of nowhere so you're kind of cautious of that but you're just driving straight in and um you can give it a little bit of power so we ended up um kind of just hitting the soft sand and we're able to rotate the the airplane 180 degrees and then tucked it back in so we got it onto the shore because these things you know it's a it's a large metal thing but it's still light when it's on the water you can use your hydrodynamics guys. Move it. it's crazy how how easy you can move these heavy otherwise heavy things you couldn't do that so easily on the ground with wheels right when you're moving an airplane out of a ramp spot um so um the you pretty much when you fire up the engine you're moving so you're positioning yourself on the sand to leave so you give it a couple hundred more rpm after you fire up to get that traction out of there uh, and then and then you're back to idle again you're trying to save and preserve that prop but there's nothing really crazy so we that was, so that was a, a beaching to pretty much a sandy surface so it's a little bit different with rocks so just coming in and probably killing or pulling the uh, mixture to idle and uh, trying to give yourself a little less of a collision rate between those rocks you know so Ideally, finding somewhere soft, but there are rubber bumpers on the very front of those floats, which help. But there's only so much absorption of shock from that because they're <laughs> directly attached to the chassis or the uh, the airframe. So, that, so that's part of like that that rough water landing part where it's like so abrasive, like landing like landing hard on a runway with the the shock absorption through the rubber itself one to the oleo struts all these other devices that protect you documents from that weight 
that doesn't exist in C plane. So that that's where that seven knot thing like sounds ridiculously small, but it is amazing how small of waves you actually want to deal with. But you know, you get in a larger aircraft, it's less of a problem. But at some point they have their minimums or maximums too. So I mean, kind of the general rule is you don't want to really exceed the height of the float in terms of waves. And that's really that is the upper limit. I'm sure somebody who's doing it day in, day out, they're they're working at Kenmore or, you know, Kenai Peninsula, tons of water, float flying experience, uh, and doing everything right, you know, really maximizing their proficiency. They can maybe probably eke out a little bit more, but I'm sure they still have their limits. And that's where you start seeing like something on an open water. Like you look at the Maldives, you look at uh Seaborne down in the Bahamas. Um, they're in twin otters, caravan caravans that have like a really good deep V hull for that rough water experience. That's what people don't really understand is like if you're looking at a 172 or super cub, they're such a low gross weight. They have a very flat bottom to it, which obviously think of all the flat bottom boats. That's for like the bayou. You know what I mean? These airboats. That's flat bottom. So we're very close to that. And so we have a very low tolerance to uh, any amount of real swell or wave height. And so half the height is probably a good general rule of thumb, half the height of the float. And then that would be probably perfect from a performance and everything standpoint. You get to the height of the float, that is probably absolute upper limit unless you're an absolute professional doing everything God, right. You could never fly um, on Lake Erie. With, um, no. Well, that's the thing. It's like the open ocean. You yeah. almost never yeah. can. Exactly right. You get to a, a foot, a foot, a I foot mean, wave. I mean, when is, is when is there ever, especially like in the bay where you have all the well, yeah, you could fly out of the bay, but like uh, the back bay, but on Lake Erie, when do you ever have less than the a back, foot? Yeah, never. It's very That's rare. why there's no seaplanes have taken any any hold. Yeah. That's why you need a significant. You need a caravan, beaver, otter. You know, twin otter, which obviously would be insane, but, um, you know, beaver, otter, caravan, Kodiak to make that remotely feasible most of the time. And then that's only on a normal day. You get any amount of wind and it's three foot, <laughs> six foot, you know, so it's like it just, just wouldn't work, wouldn't be feasible or practical because then you got to haul those floats around every day, whether you're landing on water or not. So now you've completely evaporated your advantage of landing right at downtown Putin Bay or downtown Kelly's or downtown Cleveland. Yeah, the so, advantage to amphibs is insane. Like you can do both, but there you yeah, still but have now to you gotta hold waves. that weight around. Yeah, you gotta hold yeah. that weight around and then you gotta have like kind of your pieces in place from a business perspective at the hard surface airport to get them to their hotel, get them to their boat downtown, whatever the case may be. It's all like there's a lot of circumstance stuff involved, but there are a ton you, of amphibs here. But I'm curious, are there not other than the Great Lakes? Are there not many lakes around you? No, there's that, small inland lakes, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, really, they're not really. Yeah, there's not that they, much. Yeah, I mean, there's maybe a couple of them in Ohio you could land a seaplane on, but not a ton of them. A handful of them. Yeah, and then you start from an from a uh, safety perspective. That's where you start looking at amphibs as almost a safety feature because now like you're not limited to okay i have to land on water and how am i going to get gas oh i can't get much gas here it's coming in gas cans so i'm only going to take 35 gallons when i can hold 65 gallons and i hope i can make the next lake where i can get gas 
when people deliver, so we used to have at the airport we all used to work at in Sandusky, there'd be people people land on the back bay, shallow, smooth, you know, pr- pretty much protected, and we would just take five gallon gas cans, drive them down to the end of the runway, and fill them up, and that was pretty easy. But that is not, as far as I know, that's pretty rare, you know, to get across the country that way is just. I'm a purist, so I like straight floats. I think it's cool, but um, I wouldn't want to own one. Definitely see. I'd want amphibious. Well, that's see. That's the thing is, I would want to. That's the one I would want to own. But I don't want to lug around the weight of the the hydraulics or you know Bauman and I think Legend owns them now. But they made a mechanical, um, so you didn't have all the hydraulic system and a lot of weight to it. It was not that much more weight than straight floats. That would be sweet. But they were small. They're only 1,500 pound floats. But um, one thing I would say about like beaching, one thing. So think about everything everybody knows or has learned about, uh, you know, Bernoulli's principles, all that stuff. All that stuff that applies to to air movement over the wing applies to the float as well, because it's hydrodynamics. It's not necessarily aerodynamics. It's hydrodynamics. Air is a fluid. So some of the principles. Unless it's the if it's absolute worst case scenario and you have to beach, I don't know what an emergency beaching would be per se, but if it's absolutely terrible, one of the best things you could do is get up um obviously a ways from the from where you're gonna beach and you actually want to run the power up, get plowed, and then rest and then you obviously have to plan it and get be good at it and or hope for the best. And rest it because what you do is just like that stagnation point, that uh, amount of air going over the wing or probably in Tyler's case, you would say over the rotor or something like that. You have that air that's not moving. You make this cushion. It's, it's, it's like hydraulics, right? That it's incompressible. And so what you can do is you're going to make, create that, that bow wave and that in uncompressible, incompressible section of water be a cushion as you beach it so you can do almost no damage you can go put this thing on a if it was a concrete like a boat ramp that's concrete if you do it right you can do almost no damage um if 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 done right same thing with rocks wood one of the the super cub i was flying i never did it personally i'd witnessed it done a bunch of times but they would tax this thing up a wooden ramp and that's exactly the process they would use. They would get with the wood. I think they were probably a lot less discerning on on the technique, per, I guess. But they would get probably, I don't know, ten feet out, something like that. It, it that I guess is not important. But they were far enough out. They would just give it full power, get the get it plowed, so they'd get the bow of the floats way out of the air, and they'd kind of come in really flat, almost paralleling the uh the the ramp and there so there would be very little motion because that last little bit to overcome that drag that hydrodynamic drag and stuff it takes a lot obviously that's why the takeoff performance and all those things are so critical how they're done like uh, tyler said many times um it's very very paralleling a soft field takeoff technique in a land plane maximum performance get off the ground as soon as you can because there's so much excess drag that's almost the standard operating procedure in a float plane. Um, so yeah, they, they'd be, you know, a little ways out, give it almost full power, if not full power, 
get the bows up out of the water and they'd kind of come in very close to kind of like a smacking it with a little bit of forward motion. Um, and from my understanding that is, and what I've read and what I've been told, um, that's one of the smoother ways or the least, um, abrasive ways to the bottom of the floats. Okay. Scott, yep. I know, I know bedtime. I'm out of here. You're revved and ready. You, I kept you a minute yep. over. So I know it. Yep. Man. All right. Going Good to night, bed. Scott. I didn't get a chance to talk to you, I man. Know. I leave your browser um, up. Nicole randomly sent me a message. that said milk jugs. I sent that uh, bracelet said Scott Boris saves lives like weeks ago. Did you see that? I've sent to you as well. Are you still there? Scott left, out. I think. Oh yeah. He He's out. gone. Damn it. <laughs> so what? Wait, what happened? I'm just curious. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to explain. I'll hold. Um, okay. Are you there, Scott? I don't There's think. There's no I way. Didn't, I didn't mean to leave. But I, oh. I didn't mean to leave. There I we go. Said, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I sent that bracelet thing to Nicole, the Scott Boris saves lives. And weeks went. save lives. I save a lot week, of lives. Weeks go by. And then also I get a message from Nicole. It just says milk jugs. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I like completely forgot that I sent that to her and then, um, uh, geez, can't remember what happened, but it was a very brief conversation. Ask her about it. It was funny, but I was trying yeah. to say like, have you heard like some of the things Scott says on this podcast? She's like, yeah, occasionally. Cause they're talking about like how the fact she knows what the milk jugs is, is pretty funny. So yeah. I was like, you should, so the last episode or recent recording, Lee and I were talking about what happened at Precosh, from my perspective at least, on the back of that golf cart. And oh, so God. again, you Scott. So you you weren't there at that point. Oh, we weren't supposed yeah. to talk about the back of the golf cart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so we I don't know if that has it hasn't been published to the internet yet. I don't know if it ever will, but Lee and I were discussing through that because I think it was on the it was on the pilot grounds live stream. So it was like the MP4. Mm, yeah, right, anyway. right, right. So we talked about it for a bit, but Scott wasn't around long story short. I was saying like, it was pretty funny conversation between Lee and I working through that. And, uh, we're, we had to get through that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Lee was, Lee was mad. Working Dude, on that I was factor. more than mad. I was more than mad. About what? It, so he's driving like a retard. We're all <laughs> Tyler, is? Jared, and I. Yeah, I don't know where you. Were. Oh no, you were walking. Yeah, well, you should. I mean, I was driving. Yes. I was driving like a. I was driving like a Formula One. Scott driver. was driving the golf Completely cart. Completely around like in this five people yeah, on it with five people on it. Three of us hanging on to the the uh, back, the back with the um whatever the there canopy. Was no, there was, no was not bolted. Yeah, there was zero alcohol. No zero. Scott's laughing his ass off. Involved. Jared, Scott, yeah. uh, Tyler, and I are sitting on the back with almost nothing to hold on except the canopy that is broke free from the frame, basically. <laughs> and so it's not so much of like, hey, we're gonna come off it's more like we're going to come off at the wrong time the way that he's oscillating this whole golf cart he's doing these s turns really aggressive s turns like he's warming up the tires and like, like it's I just said, getting worse and worse it's like divergent yeah that's yeah divergent oscillations and i'm like you know what? if i wait a little bit longer i'm gonna end up in this pond because he thinks he's gonna be funny and he's gonna 
pointed he's pointing at the pond and he's going to turn at the last minute. Well, I know if we all hold on to this canopy, we're going to rip the canopy off. We're going to end up in the water anyways. So all three of us, <laughs> I think I'm the only one who ditches out. And when I kind of like get out of my tuck and roll phase, Tyler is there, Jared's a little bit behind him. We all do the same thing at the same time like, "Oh, I'm not the wuss I thought I was. We all did it at the same time. We all felt the same sensations as though either the whole thing was going to tip over or we we're going to rip that canopy off and end up in the pond anyways. And I actually was in a golf cart that tipped over at Oshkosh at like midnight. It was probably fully nice. loaded, similar. Yeah. And so I was having PTSD moments there where. Yeah. As like you should have. We were going to go in. I, yeah, I wasn't concerned no. with him like wa- wanting no, the to golf drive cart wasn't into the lake. Scott, you don't understand. That's what you're just like. Oh, I, I'm not going to go in. The three of us were going to go in. That canopy yeah. was gonna come <laughs> off, and the three of us I mean, were so gonna go off. So you go, that, that sounds like a the you car, problem. The wasn't going and in. it's like, I believe no, this car wasn't going in. No, I agree with you. Wait, you so probably what, planned what that was, right. What was the debate then? What was the debate on what we were, you were gonna post? There's no debate. We're we're, we, oh. we're in survival mode at that I, point. I thought I was gonna go in the water if I held on and waited for your last turn away from the water. That that canopy was coming off because the three of us—that's all we had to hold on to. Yeah, but all three yeah, of us because so I could feel it. Skills. It's so, not about your no, skills; so Matt, it's about the structural integrity of the yeah. freaking golf cart. The high center gravity because the people standing yeah. up too. So we got we got Matt on the front, Scott yeah, Matt sitting the there, front, yeah. and then and then and the three of us in the back. So I'm kind of like I loosely briefed Nicole on what happened. She goes, "I know, I was there. I was sitting next to Scott." Yeah, I thought, <laughs> like, I thought oh, she shit. was in. The I forgot. Seat. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this all started with Rob. Why are we have a cart? Why are you walking? I said, No, no, I'm good. I'll walk. That's how that all started. Lesson freaking learned. <laughs> hey, yeah, because next you, time I will, I'll, I'll be prime. Well, I'm not going to do it next time, but I'll be prime next time. And Scott's going to be in the water. That's what's going to happen yeah. after. Well, this he's going to drive the cart. Hey, so hey, next as time, a neutral actually, party, I should have yeah, just driven the whole damn thing in the water after we were done. This sounds like a you problem. <laughs> it's like, dude, we, I, we just, I, <laughs> I think. Tyler, Jared, and I, I think, saved your golf cart. I think that's yeah. what happened. Oh, whatever. I, honestly, the thing was going to roll. It was going to roll. It was too, it was too wanna, much. It, absolutely. There's a, there's an off-camber turn yeah. it was into the lake, yeah. and we're trying to turn right to go back well, towards right, the hangar. Right. Precash 24 will reenact the same thing, except you guys will stay on, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> if that's not, <laughs> a, no. if that's not an invitation s- no. to come to yeah, the precash problem right there. Or we'll use sandbags yeah. and see yeah. how it okay. goes. Okay, okay. we'll use sandbags. Like we'll drone. reenact the exact same thing. Use, uh, same a drone amount. golf cart. Absolutely. Same amount of water, because I drank a lot of water. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't, You're going to drink a lot more water you do this experiment. Yeah, let me share my screen with some of the videos I got from that night. Ooh. Um, <laughs> no, no, so, don't. <laughs> you know exactly the video. Well, Scott, you got to stay yeah, on and make sure yeah, we don't you know. Like, yeah, your, that's true. Your eyeballs go, like, no, being opposite go directions. It's 908. Yeah, it's well, 908. I was so. saying, like, as a neutral party, if she's up to it, I would love to hear Nicole's, like, explanation of her perspective because she's in the scenario like of not having drunk for the last few hours um yeah yeah i i think it'd be hilarious yeah i'm yes. sure she come personally i'm sure she thought it was perfectly safe was come to the next precaution. <laughs> that's what all i gotta say next time we have a precaution 2024 everybody should come this is what you're missing golf yeah. cart and yeah. we'll reenact the same scenario 
They can either sit on there or provide sandbags of their equal weight. And uh, right, good night, we got to provide the sandbags now. He's already putting fine print in this little experiment. I'll drink the same amount of water just to make uh-huh. sure that I yep. have the same weight. Yeah, okay. And level of sobriety. All right, All right I got to go. The- I got to go. Okay. Night kids. Bye, All right, Scott. See you, Scott. Leave your browser up. Leave your browser see you, Scott. up. Leave your browser up. Yeah. Browser yep. up. Good talk. I'll see you, Scott. Browser Good night, down. Scott. All right, later. Oh, God. Oh, I was going to check I was out. X him off. Okay, he left on his own. Okay, so we're beaching the plane. I, this is back to the beaching. I need to wow. go get another beer. Okay. That's good. Is that cool? All right. Go now. Go now. So you're just basically running the plane into the beach. Floats yeah, go into the, the sand. Most beaches have a gradual, it could just get slowly shallower and shallower. You hit the sand, it eventually, you're not so much floating anymore. The bottoms of the floats are kind of on the sand at that point and it gives you some stability. You've beached the plane. That that concept I understand. It's at that point, you're typically you're not getting up on the beach with a seaplane, I'm assuming. Like it's still somewhat no, in the water. You're you're behind you're in front of the step. So the the all the the floating apparatus is behind the step. So you still have the option to back out and you're not that far in. Is ve- it's mo- well, at least for soft surfaces like that. It's a lot more delicate than I thought. Um, and then the the sturdiness of those floats in general, it is remarkable the things that you can like drive up onto ramps and things that are metal, metallic. And uh, so ideally, you're not, you know, like sandpaper at some point, it's going to wear away at yeah. something. You're not, you're not intentionally doing that, but you can. So... Um, the beaching process, I thought there'd be like this 20 step process and very delicate. And we're going to do this and that. And like, no, we're just going straight in. Okay. So then, so to get thinking about like how you're going to get out to is how do you get out concern. then you're packing your swim yeah. trunks for this lesson, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. That, that was the thing where like my instructor suddenly is taking his shoes and socks off and just like an unusual thing to do in an airplane. Like, okay. Like the visual of that, I'm like. I, I don't boat very often, so it's not a sight I see very often. And just, you know, <clears throat> part of the thing with like, I'm a pilot and I'm, I'm going to cough. <coughs> like this, I'm paying for this premium experience and this guy is taking his shoes and socks off and, you know, just what the hell? And I'm getting out and pulling up your pants. So bring flip flops, bring shorts, you know, all these things that typically you're going to, I'm going to this. FBO at signature and it's, you know, $500 ramp fee and about this premium, but nope, we're getting wet. And it's just like the point where you don't, you didn't bring flip flops. Now your feet are all sandy and you, and you don't, you know, all these scenarios where just it's more, you're cold. So that's the trade off of like this awesome experience. So after you're on the beach, you have this awesome backdrop that Lake Isabel shot. I have on my Instagram. I'm like, dude, just taking this in, looking around, and there's like no one there, which is also, again, that concern, like there's no one there and no one can casually get to you. There's occasionally hikers or something, but you need to consider those provisions of satellite communication. Um, this is like but, similar yeah. to CrossFit where people are paying a premium to just do this miserable thing. I've never understood it. Yeah. So um, the Lake Isabel is a uh, very well-known seaplane area at least. So there's much more layers to it that could get more complex with like truly remote things. And uh, 
there's someone even set up like a big box up there, like a lavatory to, to do your, your deeds in. And, uh, so yeah, considering, um, the accommodations, some people have put in thought to, to making a bit more comfortable perhaps for passengers to, you know, like, you know, do what you need to do when nature calls. But, um, ultimately there's some awesome visuals up there that, I thought the 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 makeshift um, toilet that basically is sitting up there is sitting on like a, a <laughs> like a near a cliff, so you got an amazing view of the lake. Sounds so wonderful. I didn't, yeah, I didn't have to use it, but I was like, that that's very thoughtful. Thank you, whoever built that. Probably hikers. So we've we've beached the seaplane now. All right, mm-hmm. just I want to be able to do this. I don't want to have to pay for an instructor, so I'm just mentally working through it with you. So. Next time in the seaplane, I'll just do it. Um, so we got our swim trunks on. Now we're in the water and we're trying to leave the beach now. You're basically just manhandling that plane so it's pointed away from the beach at this point, would be my assumption. Yeah, so you can spin it around even though it's penetrated through that sand a little bit. You can push it back a little bit. For the, I, <laughs> I was thinking through it as I said <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, talking about um, plowing through all that wood to get to the, the beach. <laughs> it's a lot of... Wow. Wow. Yeah, you said that. Play back the tape. So, um, you, you you can spin the aircraft around really easy. I'm like, dude, this is awesome. And then you have to make sure you pull it back into the sand and kind of push on it a little bit and make sure that uh, if you step away from the... Uh, keep want to say vehicle, um, basically airplane. Step away from the vehicle. You've been arrested yeah, recently, yeah. Tyler. <laughs> I have a yeah persuasion. Anyway, so, okay, anyway, I didn't mean um, derail. yeah. So yeah, that's my job. I derail. Basically, um, get it planted in the sand. You walk away, enjoy some time. There's no you know tie down straps or chocks or anything like that. So, but so that's on a lake that's up in the mountains. So think about tides. And you're out there that are uh, subject to tides that change. And so if you casually step away from your airplane, are you going to suddenly be in a scenario where the tides are going down and you get stuck and then you have to wait 12 hours, 12 hours or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another consideration that I haven't had to worry about in this particular scenario, generally flying out of lakes, but you're flying out of larger body was of water that are subject to that, then it's a concern. So, mm. but also if, if you are doing that, you're flying in um, salt probably, and you have to consider that in extensive cleaning after apparently Kenmore every time, I don't know it's every day, but very frequently because they're operating in and out of seep or uh, salt water um, clean. So there's a whole, they have this huge forklift pulls these things out again, all of them on straight floats and they just hose it down and, um, but they just won't refuse or they refuse to allow that, uh, super cub that has fabric and some wood, I think, but, um, they won't let that go into salt. Salt kills. It doesn't matter how much you are diligent with taking care of it. Salt will destroy it. It's just, it will destroy it. Salt and UV rays, man. Yeah, Nothing escapes a, it. You have a crew of 30 people that live on your boat and all they do, you know, t- deck crew of 12 guys. 
Their whole job is just to wash the boat every day. You know, like half of the deck crew. That's like what they do. This boat's still going to get this. Yep. It's going to break down even even with that extreme. You cannot stop it. So there's some questions in the chat that I've been loosely watching. Um, question from Eric says, what pre-flight is different from seaplanes? And another uh, statement after that, you probably get wet. It's not actually the case. Um, a lot of the pre-flight, well, 100% of the pre-flights ever done on a seaplane are on the dock. Uh, I'm sorry, outside of the dock on basically the, the ramp is what I'm thinking of. Um, so you, you sometimes they're they're even put on like two by fours just to keep them off of the actual concrete. But um, the, the major difference is no matter what um, uh, the scenario you, you fly into, there's always going to be water going into the float. So you have basically a big tube that sucks the water out. So you have to work through there's, I think on the floats, I was the EDO 2000 or 1800. There's like six ports. Yeah, and 2000 and a 172. Yeah, so I think it, yeah, it was probably 18 on the on the cub, but Mo- I think most it, time that's 2000 as well. Yeah, yeah. I had one so, of the hand bilge pumps here. I, I took it out a couple of days ago. I could have shown it on camera. Swedish made so, Peterson lodger. Yeah, <laughs> that's the first yeah, thing that comes yeah. to my speaking, mind. Speaking 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 of footage used for Tinder, <laughs> um, you basically <laughs> squ- <laughs> <laughs> you um are squirting out um, a lot of liquid <laughs> getting good from from <laughs> these ports that are in the float Jeez, and um apparently yeah yeah so you stick they stick that tube in the hole and you squirt out the water it's very moist so the, so, the float is basically it's similar to a boat there's like these bulkheads that's in it so it's like yes. if if you were to get a hole in in a part of the float you shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be an issue as far as like it'll be an issue staying, staying afloat it'll be an issue for other reasons yeah. but you you won't sink hopefully if it's only You're, one or two floats you might yeah you, you have, might you probably will you have a lot of um individual chambers i think there's might be four probably um but up to 50 percent can be filled up or something like that so it, it's a lot of water they can take on before it's a true so you're you're ideally not having any water in the float when you begin. I don't but well so it, each yeah 50 yeah it's up to 50 it, it, I, so there's I, I so basically I remember they, reading they, that they, yeah they call it overfloating so there's more displacement available to you because of the weight there's a number actually each I'll, float needs to be up. able to support 90% of the gross weight of the airplane 80 no i'm pretty so sure it's, it's something along those lines i remember yeah so anyway, you got to pump out up. each I, I, section. I, I, There's pull like up, pull it up. water gets in all of these little compartments in the float. It just it does. There's like yeah, probably no way to in. prevent it. Yeah, right. So you stick the bilge What's pump the, okay. in, you pump it out, and then you got to do. There's a hole for each little section of the float that's mm-hmm. separate from the other sections of the float. Of the float. So you got to yes. do each so one and pump the. the what is the max gross weight of a set of EDO two thousands? The two floats can support. 4,000 pounds. 4,000 pounds is 1.8 times the max gross weight allowed by design. 4,000 divided by 1.8 equals 2,222. Max gross weight is 2,222. Shortcut. Float rating divided by 0.9. Okay, so it is 90%. It is 90%. Max gross weight. So I was thinking that 1.8. Well, yeah. Multiplication division backwards don't always equal the same thing. I get no, my spreadsheets I, are riddled I with those the types point of nine, arrows. 
errors. Well, yeah. I, I see that one point. I was thinking, so anyway, the what's 10%. So how, so, so how says how overfloated beyond the FA requirements are super cubs. There are 222 pounds overfloated. So you got that room displacement pounds overfloated. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So the displacement available. So you have room. Yeah. So versus like meeting, you're meeting that threshold of being able to hold the water, hold the airplane above the water. So, um, you can take some water in and naturally all these things are at the top is like a rubber cork. And so there's nothing truly like adhesive or any mechanical grip. It's just, it's just using suction, the high and low pressure type of thing, sucking that's a plug that water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. It's shaped it's conveniently plug. like something you'd find it. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so basically <laughs> back to the question in the chat yeah. about the, the yeah. pre-flight being altered. One thing I thought of is, one of my lessons, there was somebody used the plane in front of me and they didn't pull it out, out of the water. It was at the dock. There's sections of the airplane, like in that example, the J3 Cub, we were doing it in a, or no, Super Cub. We didn't, there was no J3s. It was Super yeah, Cub. Yeah, it was right? J3. At was it? Jack oh yeah, Brown's Jack Brown does use J3. Okay. Yeah. So you can only get on that right float. So there's like, you can't do like the bending the rudder to the, like back and forth. And there's just a lot of parts of the pre-flight. You just... If it's at the dock floating, you can't get to it. So, so there are those differences. There's some stuff you sometimes have to skip, and then obviously there's additions of of pumping out each compartment, the bilge water, getting it out. So you're yeah. you're taking off light yeah. and dry. Yeah. If you're at the dock and you're pre-flighting on the water, it's possible. Ideally, you're able to spin the airplane around. But if the winds are not allowing that because of the weather veining, you know you can try and manhandle it, but it's going to require ultimately more than just you. And so having a friend help you tail out launch is helpful. Um, the difference also in the pre-flight that w- actually kind of got me a bit messed up in my oral exam for the check ride uh-huh. was explaining some of the differences between the water rudder and the air rudder and how are they connected. So they're interconnection springs. So there's your springs back near the rudder for the air rudder, which is weird to say air rudder. But the control cables essentially all connect into the threader cables that normally uh, are associated with what's in front of you as the pilot on the floor. So some of those interconnect springs essentially have a little bit of play in them in case they get stuck on, you know, waterfowl or some kind of crap in the water. Yes. Um, so so you're not you're not jam- your air rudders aren't ultimately jammed, but it's something to check. You want to check the. Um, deployment uh so retracting and extending those water rudders um that's part of the pre-flight because you don't want to land with your water rudders down that's bad or can or take off or take so so we talked about that in in my check ride and it's it's not you should definitely never do that but you can you definitely it's not the end of the world yeah so it's not it's not going to break anything but if you continuously do that it will so it's just wear oh, and tear yeah. it's unnecessary wear oh yeah so it's like so french it's, frying when you should be pizzing yeah well swiping left versus swiping right so basically i don't want to keep going back trend so the 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 there's a lot of mechanical things in there that are thought through for the survivability of like making mistakes because that's one of the problems with amphibs is it's opposite of landing on water versus the ground is like the gear up or gear down. So all these different indicators. So you want the gear down when you're laying on a runway. 
and you want the water, the gear up because if you land the gear down on the water, it's going to flip. And uh, I meant to mention it earlier because it, it made sense at that time. I saw a straight float airplane landing yesterday at at the airport on grass. Yeah. And that, I've never seen that in person. Yeah. Like, dude, that was awesome. Yeah. I was like, what? Are, I, was, I, I, was, I was out getting uh, tacos uh, <laughs> and um, there's taco truck now by, by the airport. And yeah, actually taco Wednesday. Who does that? I did that. King, oh. King Neptune used to do that. I remember yeah. every fall. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. so, so I, I saw all, you all get these them trucks, off, right? <laughs> King Neptune. So all these was, trucks out there. I couldn't remember his name and it popped back and what the nickname for him. Neptune. Yeah. Neptune. King Neptune. Does everybody yeah. get it now? Is everybody Never getting mind. it? Never mind. Yeah. Just, I didn't mean to just to derail Tyler. <laughs> That's my job. So. There's all these trucks out there. I'm like, what? What is going on? And so this guy comes in and, and looks like an amphib. But then we saw that like it was, yeah, it was actually straight flow. So he went, he did a go around and like, oh, well, it was kind of a little bit windy. And then realized, oh, he's landing in the grass. And uh, sure enough, he's just kind of getting a feel for it, getting an assessment and that recon thing. So mm-hmm. it's very much a it's very much a part of flying in helicopters. And that's where I first learned some of those skills before you commit to like setting down somewhere. But extends directly into seaplane as well because there's a lot of stuff that you don't know about and it, you landed here yesterday it was fine but today is a new day what's going on now so in the interest of safety and and flying this airplane again there's uh so so many of those examples are i was talking about you know considerations that i wouldn't have thought about just casually flying my wheeled 172 around the local traffic pattern I like. I don't want to go all full bear grills of all the survival equipment and drinking your own urine, but you know, at some point you could be in that scenario. So, I mean, that's something I've always thought about. Like, anyways, like even if you're in a land plane, like don't wear shorts in the middle of winter. You don't know when the engine's gonna fail. I'm not saying you need to have a full like kit of stuff, but be somewhat common sense about the terrain you're or the weather you're going to go fly in the terrain you're going to go fly over. You don't need a full like life raft emergency kit and all that stuff. I mean, if you have snacks for the flight, if you're going to go on a three hour flight over, you know, the great plains, it, it, it just be common sense about stuff. I, I think, you know, don't wear shorts on a winter flight. It's I, I shouldn't have to say anymore. If that. it's dark, turn the light on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's, that's that's pretty much it. Think about what you're going to do. I just think I know that like in the transport category, we run into this a lot where <clears throat> so I'm actually doing a trip out to California. And so we're looking uh, tomorrow. So we're looking at fuel stops and we're looking at the cheapest fuel, right? Fuel's crazy right now. So, yeah, you can find cheap fuel, but the runways are all short. So you actually have to backwards compute or you not backwards compute necessarily, but you need to look at it all backwards. If I land there, can I take off when I'm topped off with fuel? You need to start there and then go backwards. Okay. Well that can immediately tell you, no, I can't go there. So you just move on. And that's the similar way I look at. And I've come to look at most of my GA operations in general, seaplane or not, because that's something not that you're going to go anywhere. Most GA airplanes, warrior 172, whatever, is going to be able to get out of pretty much any GA airplane or GA airport that's paved. You start getting into grass strips that are 1,500 feet long, that changes things. 
you know, you're going to have, you know, a sp- particular air- airplane or weather conditions, headwind, uh, temperature to make that all work for you if you want to use that airport. But for by and large, you don't think about those things. So just like the seaplane or just like the transport category in the seaplane, I feel like you need to look at it a little bit backwards. Okay, let's assume I can land there, but can I get out of there? Yes, I can. Now go backwards uh, and figure out your your numbers, I guess, is, is the way I would, I guess I would look at it. How many so pairs of glasses does it cost to learn to fly a seaplane? I, I didn't <laughs> yeah. lose any, I don't think. It cost I me one pair of Maui gyms to uh, learn oh, to man. fly a That banner. was expensive. That was expensive. I still have them. I don't think Maui Jim fixes them anymore. Um, I don't know. I've moved on. I feel like that. that moment for me is what got me into the club of being right a seaplane pilot. It was finally losing a pair. Um, but literally in the presence of my DPE and losing them in front of him was like, oh, I felt like I aced my whole flight and this and that. And um, yeah, the oral exam was a bit rough. I wasn't fully prepared for that. You're, you, a, dude, you never, you never are. You never well, are. I, you know, totally, we've really focused on the flying part and, and my CFI didn't get me as far with the oral preparation that I thought I look my initial private, the amount of work and dedication I put into that was like several weeks leading into it. And I, I felt like I did really well there and it was probably the most embarrassing exam I've ever had. Cause the helicopter was pretty, you know, pretty stout with like the amount of involvement into it. But the seaplane, I was thinking like, it's, it's mostly just landings and that's all you got to do. Like, no, there's a lot more to it in terms of like talking and describing inaccuracy, like why, a seaplane prop is that and it's a little bit different than potentially a climb prop. You know, I, I was under the impression that, well, it's, it's bigger and takes a bigger bite of the air. And the DPU is so offended by that. And, you know, it's really about uh, the flatter pitch getting to RPM and making peak horsepower quicker. So that was his, his pivot on that. Yeah. So some of these misconceptions of like loft mailing it in and kind of like, not it's not that I didn't take my oral exam seriously. It was like I just wasn't as prepared as I thought. I didn't go through with the ringer with my CFI um as I did in every other check ride prep. So because we focus so much on the airmanship and so much fun, you get lost in that and you, you kind of get um yeah, like hey this guy flies. Yeah. Yeah. I all yeah, my seat so t- it's a serious rating. All my seaplanes in the J three, so it's like there was no that never came up. John Brown was my DP. DPE. Yeah. I, I mean, I would assume that like going through Kenmore, uh, Browns, it'd be a similar, somewhat of a similar experience. I would have thought, but Jack I understand Brown's, how, go ahead. Jack Browns is a, a I don't want to use the term pilot factory, but they have it very systematized. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was very, it's hard for me to um, separate that I've spent more time on boats than I have planes. So I think there was a lot, just a lot of stuff that it just, it clicks so fast for me. I just, I didn't have any issues with that 
that rating. With the tailwheel stuff, yeah, yeah. And yeah, like you said, so systematized, systematic. Yeah, they just they covered everything precisely. Like this is how you do it. I remember we we still need to hit the five hour mark um, to to take the check ride, and we had covered everything in like three and a half to yeah. like satisfactory stuff. So yeah. it was just we were just kind of out killing time, just doing fun stuff kind of just recapping almost doing like a like a check ride prep type stuff i love mock check rides man i love i'm big fan the cfi is like it's his boss he's preparing me to go do the check ride it's all in house kind of well i guess that's also true is like he's got not his jobs on the line but it's also like kind of you know what i mean it's like an observed Every student he sends is kind of like ipso facto and observe check right on him. Yeah. You have, you know, everything, you know, it, I can see how that, that would be. I mean, I wish I was more prepared for mine. Um, I wish I was more pre- prepared for every oral or practical test that I do. And uh, I, I always fall short of my own, like my own high, my own standards and you know, I just did a uh, I just did a check ride uh, earlier this month, uh, or which comes within you have like three days of class, three days of no, two days of class. Yeah, two days of class, two days of Sims. Then the final day is a check ride and an, an oral and a check ride. And that was the probably one of the more prepared ones I've done. We kind of got the inside track on this examiner, and he was like a stickler on stuff. Uh, and so, like that was the best oral. Um, I I didn't I didn't miss a single question, and uh, neither did the guy I was flying with from my same company. Well, I mean, we, he, so they bounced back and forth on the questions, and maybe I just got all, all. Neither one of us missed anything. We got a hundred percent on our oral, and then the check ride. Uh, it was was normal. I mean, not that I normally do bad, but um, that that was good. But I've I always walk away wishing I had done better. There's just no because when when you're going through training, like even with us, like it's like ah yeah, steep turns were good, stalls were good. It's like if it's good enough, you don't do you don't retrain if it's good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like it's like even if I want to, it's like eh. you know, there's just everybody everybody. The instructor, the examiner, us, we're already get out of the sim. We're ready to get out of the box as soon as possible. So no matter what we wish we would have done better, it's so painful. And that's like the paradox of it. I wanted My OCD says I want to do better. But all these time constraints and just fatigue setting in, everything is like shutting it down. Like yeah. my OCD says... Let's do let's do another set of steep turns, even though that was passing. You know what I mean? But yeah. everything else is saying, no, nah, let's just go let's just go back to the hotel, get a beer, you know. Check ride wise, my private was good. I enjoyed that one. My commercial, ditto, same, good. And then the seaplane rating was probably my favorite. Um, but yeah, the instrument and the CFI were nightmarish for me. Those, yeah, I mean, those are, I think, designed to be some of the, you know, the tougher ones, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you're about to go teach people all of, in the FAA's mind, you're about to go teach people 
all of the shit you don't know. Yep. And when yeah, you I think that's yeah. Most of the time when you're sitting for a CFI, you really don't know enough to be nope. a great CFI. No, nope. like exactly. I'm sure there's exceptions. I'm sure there's people who like fly and get a ton of experience and like they add the CFI like later on in their career or their flying journey. And those are probably good ones. Um, they probably do better with it. But I feel like the vast majority of CFIs, when they get the initial CFI, it's just like uh, they just pass their commercial like within the last year. I also wonder though, like I, I totally agree with what you're saying for the most part, but then like the contrarian me like goes and like, well, yeah, but theoretically if I go have like a bunch of time, like let's say I'm, I've been flying, I'm like a commercial pilot. I've got some like gig flying a, whatever, a King Air, a Pilatus, whatever. I got 5,000 hours of flight time. I now want to get my CFI. How many bad habits have I accrued? Is it easier to do it at 350 hours or is it easier to do it at 5,000 hours? You know what I'm saying? That's true. Yeah. You've you entrenched do. in all these bad habits of like, yeah, I'm just getting the mission done. And then you or, unlearn all that. Or say you don't even pick up any bad habits. It's just okay. you have now put this big space um, between yourself and the learning to fly environment. It's like. Yeah. In that case, I just say, don't even do it. Don't even get like, your CFI at that point. Right. Because it's you. I don't, I don't know if I'd say that, but it's just there are some advantages to having just gone through it. And Definitely. everything's fresh in your mind. But what um, if you have a bad instructor who's misled you on some stuff? Like, I feel like I ran into that a fair bit. Like, it's just, well, and I got bounced around a lot, but I just feel like, yeah, there was some negative, not negative, yeah, negative transfer, I suppose, of some, of some core principles. Some were old school, some were like news, like, like, hey, I'm, I just got my CFI, you know, I know everything. So I got some of that and then I got some old school, like, and then they're like, they don't even teach it that way anymore. So I, I go for my check ride and it's like, oh, that's not like even close. Like talk to I, me about, I don't know, aerodynamics. And somebody's talking about like Newton's laws, not Bernoulli, you know? I... Or something. I went through my whole different ratings comparing every CFI after I got my private to Don Mather, which I think is unfair to all CFIs. And I think when I got my CFI, I was kind of comparing myself to Don as far as like, that's probably why I didn't become a CFI. And it's not really high. Yeah. fair, I don't think, like a fair bar. It was such a unique situation that I didn't realize until like I was out of it. Because he, he grew up with his dad running a flight school out of Hopkins, right? I think the no, backstory. they had their own airport near there. Okay. But like he grew up, yeah, his dad running a, the bigger flight school back in the day. So like that's, and he did it on the side for fun. Like it wasn't even like a, like a student pilot mill. It's just, he kind of just picked his students. He had, a, he had you know, other income sources and stuff. Like he just did it kind of for fun on the side. I think to yeah. this day, he still keeps just a few students he works with and that's it. Yeah. I've lost touch with all, all that, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And yeah, the, those types of people with that type of the gamut 
of real world experience and then being able to um, imprint that on new students, but also being in tune enough with the modern FAA stuff. Uh, I think that is a perfect blend, but I don't know how it seemed. I, I would think that would be somewhat unique. You either have the old school people or you have the new school people and having somebody that can kind of blend those two concepts together. I would assume is probably pretty rare. They're holding on to the old school and just doing what they need to, to get through the new school, but embracing the new stuff with the old school uh, knowledge, wisdom, wisdom, the old school wisdom with the new school, the way the FAA wants things done, the ACS uh, scenario based that I, I would assume that to be kind of rare. I don't know. Yeah. Tyler. I know I know yes. this. I won't ask bother asking Lee this cuz I know the answer is no. But do you have like one particular CFI you can remember like being stand out amongst the others? I lucked out all of my CFIs for the sake of whatever my new thing it was never aggressively a problem um and they're all awesome. Though, when I've gone in between some kind of primary training for like a, you know, helicopter, private, this and that, um, had a few abrasive conflicts and personalities where I kind of like to lighten the mood, maybe. It's not that I'm not serious when we're flying, but there's certain like personality traits that don't match up. And uh, I don't know. I've had a few... CFIs, I, th- I think every single CFI I've ever flown with, I've learned something different. They'll have their pivot points of something they care about. Like one of the first people I flew Hot with spots. after getting my private, yeah. but you're taxiing too fast. Little trying to nudge you in the perfection level, like flying with like chief pilots or something that kind of come in to do check ride or well, some kind of prep before a check ride. And they're kind of running through the grill um, on intentionally trying to upset you trying to you could trying to get you to you know ultimately be a safe pilot but those those are stressful moments but flying with like someone basically shoulder to shoulder for 40 hours i think it's a really strong component to have personality traits that match so my advice from experience is to treat when you're talking to any new flight school or, or a set of flight instructors treat it as a job interview for them because it's going to be a long time that you're together. I think that you should get some deviation in um, that. Um, so it's not the same person every single flight, but go fly with other people. You learn certain things because like those hot spots, for example. Um, but there's like, don't, don't accept the first CFI that's assigned to you because it might not work out or like, I I once flew with a guy that was in his late eighties, not mid, not early. And I, I thought that he didn't say much ultimately. And that's who I was flying my tail with, but he actually still had a strong airmanship and work ethic ethic to it that like when he was demo- demonstrating stuff, I'm like, damn, like this guy can fly. So we're coming in in a champ with like no flaps and all these complex scenarios where you're, you're having to slip because that's the only way to slow down because we're coming over like the 50 foot obstacle for real. And it's pretty remarkable things. 
and assumptions they make of people, you know, judging a book by the cover, but you start to spend more time with them and start to realize like, yeah, this is a great relate relative relationship that we're having between the student and instructor. Um, but you can get a pretty decent read on someone, you know, those first five seconds, those first impressions, but it finds out, you find out later that, yeah, this person's awesome and just might've judged them poorly initially. So some people have a bad day and, you know, you cop them in that moment, but, um, definitely take an opportunity when you're initially getting involved. And if you're a brand new, fresh student to kind of talk around and meet some people, just don't accept the first thing that gets thrown your way. Cause sometimes it's just completely random. But, um, my helicopter instructor primarily, um, I didn't know him at all, but he was friend of a friend and we actually became really good friends after the fact we still have like a group chat. I got my helicopter rating in 2016 and, uh, there's some hilarious moments where we just have, so the helicopter pilot group's a little bit smaller than just airplanes in general. Cause there's less people willing to one, get in the helicopter and then two be able to afford it perhaps. Yeah. So it's right. a bit more tight, it's a bit, it's a bit more tight knit that way. And so feel a bit more, um, closer in that regard. But some of the conversations, cause you know, especially in R22, you're shoulder to shoulder. So that, that pilot CFI relationship between the students, um, it's pretty damn important in my opinion and not, not one to be, um, glossed over because it's just something that's difficult to obtain perhaps. Cause if, if you have one flight school in the area and there's one flight instructor, that's kind of maybe your only option. I've, I've flown some old, mm, just sounds ages, but just people that just ages. should probably hang up. Yeah. Like, man, like, dude, this, this is unpleasant. Like, why are you so grumpy? You know? So I get along get to that point. Uh, I can get along with some of those guys though. I, my issue, I have an issue Yeah, but with, see, you're not an idiot though. Remember they come in, remember the person who they just got done flying with, what might they be like? And yeah. then you come in, that's a different deal. That, 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 that table is set, that bed is made like the, the first handshake they're already making that assessment you know what i'm saying okay but you know what i'm saying i know what you're saying but okay if i go to like if it starts to become like someone i would consider like a peer like relative age group okay with me yeah i don't i just don't take the the lesson as as serious like that's why i was so and that's how scott is too and that's when I did a little bit of training with you, Lee. I forget what it was. Probably instrument stuff or double eye stuff. Um, like, it was a friendship on top of it. I just, I couldn't. I could yeah. not get in the mode of, I could not get my mental self in student mode. Because it's like, right. I'm, f- right. I'm in a plane with Lee. Like, what? What, right. what are you talking about? Like, right. There's just, I don't know, when there's that age difference for me personally, there's that little level kind of a respect where, I don't know, it's more conducive to learning with my learning style. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's very natural. I mean, your whole life you have been 
learning and everything from somebody that is older than you. And you get to the stage, and so now, anytime, learn to sail, learn to fly, learn to golf, learn to snowboard, whatever, wakeboard, whatever it is, you're now starting to get into the age range where you're going to be more exposed to peers. And I think... uh, If it's snowboarding or wakeboarding, I want the guy with, like, dreadlocks who's probably high and, like, you know... Bumming on someone's couch, like yeah, that's I'm, what I'm looking I'm for sure. is like a snowboard instructor or a wakeboard I mean, instructor. It's probably high probability. I don't know. Yeah, I, that, I'm just that, saying that's, you, you're going to learn the most from that person in in those CFI that's hungover. Yeah, it's CFI that's hungover. Exactly. So yeah, I, I I think that's only natural to, to look at it that way. You get into that, you know, uh, you're a successful whatever middle-aged person you're going to go for flight lessons it, i i don't know what people do i like i don't know what people do I, I like i don't get it but i mean i i know as a cfi you have all these walks of life come through the door that want to learn to fly and it's like okay you shouldn't be able to afford this but you can and then you're super easy to fly with and then this guy is a whatever multi-millionaire and you are a pain in the ass to fly with. And so, like, there's two sides of the story, obviously. And, you know, there's there's being the instructor, there's being the student and that interaction. And they may see two different sides of, of not you necessarily, two sides of you, but they may perceive that interaction a different way. The rich guy might appreciate the interaction. You might think they're a pain in the ass. The guy who's... uh shouldn't be able to afford it, thinks you're a pain in the ass, but you enjoy flying with them. So there, I mean, there's so many variables and dynamics happening, and I, I, I haven't seen it all, but I've seen a wide range of, of that financial background and how those interactions with people went. Um, and it's to, to, to make these magical pairings, to start with somebody as a student pilot, they come in the door, Never flown an airplane, don't have the written done, haven't, don't know what sporties is. They don't know what king, you know, king is or any of these other ones. They come in the door. You have to take them from literally ground zero, build them up. And now they want an instrument rating. Now they want a commercial rating or commercial certificate and, or an instrument rating, then a commercial certificate. You want to just keep going through this. It's crazy. The relationship that you build. One thing I do want to say, I don't know how much proximity to that individual plays. You know, in a uh, an R twenty two, R forty four, and you're literally shoulder to shoulder, uh, or a warrior where you maybe have three inches of separation or six inches of separation, then you yeah. get into a uh, airliner where you have two feet of separation, uh, shoulder to shoulder. I don't know that it matters. I think it's really just about you have that one person. It's a super concentrated dose of two personalities. I think that's the defining thing, not the actual proximity. Yeah, you know, because I've been in uh, a flight deck. I was commuting home. There were two pilots, a captain, a first officer, and two jump seats in an Airbus. And that was everybody seemed to be good, but there were topics that came up in that one hour flight. That it's like, wow, we have too many personalities in this little space. Although we had plenty of space, uh, is I, 
it's it's just crazy the things. That's why they don't talk about uh they tell you don't talk about religion and politics. And it still gets talked about, but it's uh it's interesting to me when you have that door shut behind you and all you have is that other person. No matter what thought you have, what thing you want to talk about, wherever that conversation goes, just like this now, wherever that conversation goes, you have one other person. It well, is. You have two other people in this situation. In when this Scott situation. Was still here, you had three yes. other people. Yes. And that was similar to that like Airbus situation I was just talking about. There were some things that were talking about that were very, very questionable. Like cover up that uh, that uh, flight deck uh, cockpit voice FDR, recorder. Yeah. Black box. CVR. And it's like. It's actually orange. What? Uh, the the no, black box little, that was actually orange. a little microphone looking everything. thing. Yeah. yeah right, it's a little right microphone. dead center. Yeah. Well, they're all over the place, but yeah, most of the time they're right dead center. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times people take like off of their, um, the mic boom, they'll take the mic sock off of that, put it over it, and that's enough to muffle most of it anyways. Oh, but, man. Or you just cover it up when you're about to say something. These are just questionable. Tips. Future airline pilots out there. Uh, well, yeah, there's also a CVR, CVR erase button too. Yeah, yeah, there's a big... But yeah, I'll, I'll post not, that in the. Uh, it's not hard if you say something you should have. It's like yeah, it's just like now. I wish we had just press that erase button real quick. And so wait, it, there's yeah. a button in the cockpit of an airliner where you can just it, oh, I don't want that on there. Yeah. You can hit it, and what it scrubs it, ten yeah, seconds or whatever how, back. How Remember back. that CVR only records like the last thirty minutes, anyways. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? It literally says erase. Yeah, right. It's an erase button. Wow. I wish we had that for the show. That's what I just said. Yeah. I use it every episode. You'd lose this whole episode, though. Yeah. Well, but I don't like anything I say. Yeah. Barb was saying she she does friendship mode with her CFIs. She enjoys that. And I can I can do that as long as we don't have a prior relationship, if that makes sense. Like this happened with Jack Cochran. I know Jack Cochran because of um, he was one of my half dozen CFIs I went through on my way to my CFI. And then we just became friends through that process. But yes. with with Lee in particular, it was different because like I know like I knew him well before mm-hmm. we got in the plane with him as a CFI. We'd flown together a bunch of times where he wasn't the CFI and we'd just be arguing the whole time about how to do it correctly. Just like and then now. now and now he's technically, in, I think I was working on the double I, which I never ended up getting when, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that didn't work. That didn't work at all. Yeah, I feel like, though, now, because there's a bigger difference in our flight times and a bigger difference than all, all those things, I feel like it'd go a little bit better. I don't know, though. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know either. Feel like we'd Let's not big, try it. It might strain our friendship too much. It's, well, once we get a cockpit recorder for Scott's 150, it might be might be some good, good content. Oh well, yeah that I, it, that that it would do. We're not installing this magical <sighs> yeah. erase button on that one. Pilot it. Ground Premium for that <laughs> content. <laughs> yeah, It'll yeah, be uncensored. I, yeah, well, yeah, right. The complex rating I got was with a, a pretty close friend and it being or not rating complex endorsement. Mm. So it's kind of like a sign in a logbook, right? So it's a little less 
it's important, but it's not as it's not a full check ride and moving your flight review, you know, 24 calendar months. So I was very cautious about flying with someone that, you know, you could laugh with like I kind of the point, like I've met Lee in person and I've spent a couple hours now talking with Lee. And I think in the two of us flying together would be hilarious, but at some point you need to be like serious about what, whatever you're working on. So I want to make sure very thorough with like complex typically involves some kind of landing gear and making sure that's down. Right. So let's not get so focused on like this hilarious joke. And we both collectively forget to put the landing gear down. So I, I do find value in flying with people I don't know. Yeah. But having a decent relationship in the way of like, work, it's a working relationship yes. rather than completely like joke time. So that's you run that's into a multi-crew of environment often though. You fly with the same people a lot. And so you do, uh, what is that? What is that called? Why is this escaping me now? What is that word called? Uh, words are hard. Complacency. Complacency. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be like most like, dangerous most dangerous place is two CFIs flying together or something like that. Well, yeah, or two captains flying and we do captain on a captain sometimes and like they say wow. when you have two captains you have no captains. That's kind of the thing. Yeah. You like you like everybody expect everybody else to catch catch the slack. And that's where SOPs, checklist usage, checklists in general need to be like really really good and that's that's one of my sticking points but like like your example like you and I going and flying like we're kindred spirits in a lot a lot of ways and that can be a bad combination a bad yes. you know equation for things but if you back it up <laughs> with sound yeah. checklist usage and things like that SOPs which is hard to do sometimes in GA airplanes it's a it, that can be a really potent mix of things, which yeah, I, I totally don't. I agree with you. I don't recommend at all. But they you make get checklists into, for GA planes. Wait, well, <laughs> barely, barely. <laughs> okay. I, so you write it on your wrist, and then by you know the flights. So it's um ba- the amount of jeez. Uh, so you're like sweating, and then when as soon as the checklist disappears, you know you need to come back to the airfield because you're done. Ah, yes. Yeah. The palm sweat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it's like a endurance, you know, instead of a timer, you just have a checklist written on your wrist. Well, that would be a more direct measurement of fatigue and things like that. Yeah. Can patent that one. Yeah. It's totally, totally. um, Yeah. Do you guys sweat out the back (laughs) of your shirts in your first solo? Where they cut it out? I think I've sweated out. In GA airplanes, that's not hard to do. In no. the summer when we're doing a lot of our flying. Yeah, welcome to the hot box. Yeah, seriously. Well, I soloed March 16th in northern Ohio, place. so I did what? not sweat out my shirt. You soloed when? What did you say? March 16th in northern no, Ohio. No, you did not. Port Clinton. Did not I did sweat. not sweat out my shirt. You did not sweat out at all. Yeah, in fact, you probably kept your jacket on the whole time. Most of it. I don't you? know. I don't remember. But yeah. You probably did. Probably did. They had to cut out your jacket. They cut the hood off your jacket, not the tail off your shirt. Weird yeah, thing with that's... helicopters is you can take the doors off because it's like so it's like 90 Fahrenheit outside again in Seattle. Like people in Arizona, oh that's not very hot. But in Seattle, it's like dang. So it's all this moisture in the air. Yeah. So you pick up and you got this giant fan above you, and now it's like I don't know, 40, 50 degrees. It it drops many, many degrees, and you're like freezing. Like I regret not wearing a coat. It's not logical to wear a coat in 90 degree Fahrenheit weather. 
but you have it's not that it's not the wind blowing over you like in terms of like like in a car going by you it was just the the temperature drops completely and you're like man this is a good way to cool down but i'm cold so at one point we're like doing autos with the doors off and like the, the side draft coming through it was like violent it's just like this sucks I let's love, just go home i love flying helicopters in south florida in the summertime with the doors off 22 yeah i i, I imagine it might be a different environment out there in terms of like moisture in the air. It's humid. Some point it's humid as I'll get out. But you're getting so 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 you're so getting sunburned. Yeah, I, I imagine it's more pleasant because up here, just the temperature drops and then you're just cold. And you're probably wearing a short sleeve shirt and then you're like cold. And uh, yeah, Florida, you so can go up like shivering. five thousand feet in South Florida still, and it's still excruciatingly hot. Yeah, so the open door thing, the visual too, like doing autos with the doors off was partially daunting at first and you get used to it, but yeah, it was pretty cool. I don't know um, if I have any, I, I don't have that much helicopter time, a few hours. I don't think any of it was with the doors on in the R22. That's hilarious. Yeah, down, yeah probably not. They'd never have the, they never had, yeah. maybe one lesson in the winter, I think I did, might have had doors on it, I can't remember. Yeah, but most one of them day it was 80. Yeah, God. It's chilly. That's funny. <laughs> it, it's funny how, <laughs> how quick you can take those doors off because it's just a little pin. Pin, and yeah, there's right, a right. Locking thing, and you, that's part of the pre-flight. But um, the you know hot box of a Cessna is exaggerated with the fishbowl of a Robinson. So it's just this like refraction of light just hitting you, and like, dude, you you know, speaking of getting close to someone as far as their bo smell. Something I guess I'm really sensitive to is like I just can't stand that. Oh no, that's like, terrible. Yeah. Oh, so, so you don't like but, you don't wear the all natural deodorant? Is that any person yeah. deodorant? I I I made a comment when we we're talking about full motion sims, and then Rob interjected a sto moment, and then like I um yeah, just certain certain cultures don't believe in antiperspirants, and just is disproportionately like something I can't deal with. So. My fiance says you got to get the aluminum free stuff. Aluminum free? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So getting into the good. Something when like I go, I, like when I want to take a flap, like a Cessna flap yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You right. know? Yeah, yeah. More aluminum, the better. Getting into winter, I go to aluminum free, deodorant only. Yeah. When I know I'm not going to sweat as much. Wow. Change it up because you keep the same antiperson deodorant. Eventually, it starts losing effectiveness, I think. I don't know. That's just my perspective on it. Anyway. Okay. So Tyler, the <laughs> helicopter man, Robinson yeah, check out here. Then <laughs> is that seaplane episode? <laughs> you can accidentally, we're in the after chat. Now we can do whatever. I know it's the so chat's kind of not really, I don't know. I haven't been paying attention to it. Maybe they are suggesting great things. I just don't know. Um, you can you can hit the boom with your rotor on a Robinson, right? No, mass bumping. Mass bumping. That seems to be the biggest concern about a Robinson helicopter. So the Robinson has a teetering hinge, and so you can do that on a Huey as well. So that's when basically the pivot point is above, above basically that that um, they call that the, the Jesus nut typically. So if that um, detaches suddenly from the rotor essentially or praying to Jesus what they say but um, 
So the, the problem is you, you get low G environment, you unload that rotor. And, um, there's a great illustration. If you go to YouTube on how that, that works between like the rotor itself and, and the mast hitting and colliding and then detaching. So we learned a lot of, you know, a lot of the regulations and the, the FARs, the, the FARs, I guess, um, are written blood because people made dumb mistakes. And so the Vietnam war in particular, we learned about the effects of mass bumping primarily because people are trying to push over to get like guns on a target and uh, certain rotor head designs can support that, but the teetering hinge in particular can't. So there's semi-rigid and rigid rudder. Rigid rudder is typically um, cost prohibitive. And so things like that uh, Red Bull helicopter can do loops and rolls and that's a rigid rudder system. And okay. they did some other magic to make that happen. So, um, you know, every helicopter is aerobatic once at least, but <laughs> right. um, that, once. That, the idea, yeah. the idea is to just not unload the rudder and take that simple rule of never getting in the low G environment and you're good to go for the most part. There's other considerations there, but, um, I was in an Airbus helicopter, privately owned, like, uh, what was it? H-135, so like $5 million helicopter. It was amazing. Again, on my Instagram. Um, it's a, has a rotor system that can support low G and do zero G. And he's like, want to try it? And like, as a Robinson pilot, I was like, so like, uh, like pause brain. Like, let's think through this. Cause like, obviously he wants to probably live too. Anyway, we did zero G in a helicopter and it was like the most bizarre thing ever and uh, had the disproportionate power of a turbine engine as well. All these things, that, uh, uh, it's not on Instagram, but we did like a vertical takeoff that's like straight up. Again, you have some of the redundant multi-engine stuff you can't do, you shouldn't do a single engine because you could fail. You don't have that forward velocity and you can't do an auto. Uh, because you're too low to the ground. So you can do zero G or I'm sorry, zero speed autos and, and Robinson's we need altitude altitude to recover. So um, it's, it's actually really interesting to try a sim on X plane. They have pretty decent rotor uh, physics, but you know, you got that initial drop me moving, basically trying to transition that forward momentum to get air speed into the blade to continue to fly because your rotor is your wing. So the misnomer that a helicopter loses engine is just going to fall to the ground. It's not true. There are certain scenarios that are, you know, in basically this height velocity chart that are red zones. So like you're pretty much not going to make it unless it's pure luck, but then there's the gray areas and then there's the white areas. So you get through that velocity chart, essentially we were low to the ground. You want to be at least 50 feet off the ground as you're hauling ass with speed. You think like you have that energy in the blade, but you don't have necessarily the time to react to an auto and some of the other moments that go through that um, transition into basically setting it down. So surprisingly, if you look at height velocity chart at Robinson, there's this big like red area at the very bottom that keeps it out of like avoid flying really low and really fast. So those river runs look super awesome, but man, they're dangerous. So you want to carry some height, Altitude's your friend, regardless of your airframe or um, category of class. So, but if you have um, more blade energy, like a Chinook, for example, huge, huge helicopter that can sling load and carry people at the same time, autos are a non-event practically. Um, 
it's a little bit different with the the counter rotating thing, but you know, some think of like a let's say a Black Hawk that that's a great example of just like no problem autos. And so I I touched on it in the helicopter episode in the Robinsons like 22,200 foot per minute descent. <laughs> like it's a roller coaster. Yeah. We're doing it. Hmm. And you get used to that sensation. It's not a big deal at some point. So you just the, get, the weird one is uh, the v- uh, vortex ring state when you're up there, basically the equivalent of a stall in a helicopter. Otherwise, and you just run out of ability to maintain uh, lift. So you're at some kind of you're simulating generally high, hot, and humid, but you have to like escape your own rotor wash and get out of that because you the, if you add more power, for example, you descend quicker. So there's some um, recovery techniques that are kind of established and there's some that are controversial and uh, everyone that's another topic in the helicopter world that gets people going kind of like uh, high wing or low wing in in the fixed wing world. Like what's better? Lean of peak. Lean of peak. Oh, oh, geez. Oh, geez. Yeah. I feel like low wing catalyst to that. Amsoil. Um, Amsoil's oh, the geez. best. Oh yeah, what? Well, oh yeah, go go on a go on a BMW forum. Stop. What's your favorite oil? You want you want yeah, and then throw if you could virtually print out like knives to everyone and just like yeah, the the knife fight on those things is crazy. So I I don't even know. One of my probably my dream helicopter would be like an MD five hundred. Is that rigid? Semi rigid? MD, um, probably most are, most of the nice ones are semi-rigid. Semi-rigid. Okay. Yeah. Um, Take a Viagra, you know, <laughs> Rob, four hours later, have the little blue pill. Um, you know, uh, there's certain things about, uh, when you get in that realm, sometimes the helicopters have suspension in them and you get ground resonance. There's a great video. I think they did it on purpose, but of a Chinook strapped to the ground. Um, basically resonating with itself and it rips itself apart. Um, so air, uh, helicopters that have suspension because the Robinson has like, just straight skids. And by the way, the skids are meant to split in, in case of like collision with the ground and trying to absorb some impact. So from that, you can't have external loads directly strapped to the skids because they're meant to go one direction and not down. But, um, they're meant to go move up and split and then kind of absorb an impact. So uh, you get into a scenario like the Schweitzer has kind of like, I don't know if they have struts in them, but there's a suspension element to it that absorbs some of the impacts of just generally setting down. And they have wheeled aircraft and all those um, are subject to ground resonance. And it was part of my check ride um, oral exam. We're, we're walking through that and I've never had to really experience an aircraft that has had that attribute. And so my knowledge of it was a bit more limited and it was a struggle to work through it having recently read about it, but there's certain nuances of these different types of helicopters that have their strengths and weaknesses. And so historically Robinson, Kurt, uh, Frank Robinson was um, building this as a device to commute as a personal Tyler, transportation. Do you know Jen's but, in the chat? Did you know that? Oh, uh, she is. Yeah, she is. Where is she? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you when you're older. Oh, I'm sure Don't Barb is going to pounce. Fully articulate. Oh, no. gonna... oh, great. So. <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, oh, thank God. Someone who knows more about rotorcraft than Tyler. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Just come up here, Jen. She's working. <laughs> oh no, no. That's hilarious. No, I can this see it. Is even better. So just give yeah. it this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't have said so, anything. I didn't even uh, going on my monologue. That was hilarious. So, um, no, no, I have he's Tyler. He's, he's, <laughs> thought. he's fabric, yeah. flabbergasted now. The only thing it. that yeah. could make Tyler Brunkhorst speechless. Oh, Jen and the I chat. shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have said anything. That's so funny. Oh, um, God. come up here. Yeah, she's working. So that's part of the reason I'm up in the bedroom in the corner. <laughs> uh, it's like, <laughs> being a hot box like ah there's no air conditioning so um the robin frank robinson's goal for that helicopter was personal transport and it became a scenario where it was like the cheapest thing compared to all these other helicopters like the md500 with its fully articulated as jen pointed out and so <laughs> there uh there became like the the tail rotor for example was like the width of frank robinson's microwave oven. so they oven. okay yeah yeah i learned so, that on the all right podcast yeah, you, as a guest. <laughs> you should subscribe. It's amazing. Yeah. You join the ground crew. Join ground crew. So basically, um, yeah, there's little things like it's just kind of not necessarily DIY, but there's a bit of engineering involved and, and it wasn't meant to be a trainer because it was so affordable. It became a trainer, at a lot of flight schools and is less forgiving because of the design of the teetering hinge and things involved with that that made it um, get a bad rap from the people, the bank people that can bankroll flying a turbine helicopter. Good for you. Like it's bad enough to fly a Robinson in terms of like hourly rate. And then you get into like the 500 to a thousand dollar an hour range with the higher end helicopters to be, to start. And it goes up from there. Right. So, um, there, the, there's people that start in, they, well, typically let's say painting scenario, start in the military and they have opportunity to jump right into those turbine helicopters. And that's great. And so they never have to experience a piston helicopter in general, much less a Robinson. And so they're perfectly safe. If you fly them as Robinson intended and just don't put them in low G scenarios and that you're going to be perfectly fine. You don't do this. Don't do that. You know, LTE loss of teller effectiveness, all these scenarios that are totally preventable or be an idiot and, and do that. And so um, there's, I think it's Brazil and New Zealand in particular have a high fatality rate in Robinsons because New Zealand, they're using our like ranch and stuff. And so they're putting them in these like high G maneuvers and then suddenly pushing over into low, um, long story short, um, they, they're, they're the collection of most of the TikTok or Instagram videos, um, what involving, some kind of injury or fatality in Robinson's tends to be in the concentrated area where the training is not as stout as, as some of the FAA and, and it gets us involved in. And it's kind of like this over looming thing of fear or, you know, something involving like rules being written in blood, but there, there's a good reason for it. And we're learning and evolving in society in that way of like, don't do stupid things and just don't, go low G and a teetering hinge. And so some of them you can maybe luck out and everything um, works out for you. But um, there was recently a Huey that was doing low G pushovers with like six people on board for like a tour. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so I'm reacting to the comments that are, I'm trying to ignore in the chat. Yes. Ignore. Um, so if you, the single engine helicopter, a piston helicopter, single engine, whatever, versus like a dual turbine 
that is it's super risky in like a single engine to do like straight up and down like a confined takeoff and landing yeah so so think of a helicopter ems so you um we watch them take off from very confined areas typically like directly on a road and so there might be power lines to the left or the right adjacent you don't know even with the scout that um they're because it's probably two in the morning yeah and it's really dark and you can't see so you like i said scouting and recon you flew that yesterday but today is a new day and things change so you have to do those recon passes before you attempt to go truly low level and the, the trick with the wires in particular is to fly over the towers, not attempting to fly over the wires themselves. Mm-hmm. As it yes. gives you a better, better Same thing with the power. On. I learned that power parachute yeah. lesson, actually. Yeah, guy wire avoidance. Yeah, so... I, kicked, um, I almost kicked the top of a power tower. Anyway. Jeez. So uh, with, with piston helicopters, in particular, it's mostly about just having one engine. So the sake of redundancy... In most things aviation, you have two of something like a magneto um, or your twin, um, sorry, transport category typically have more than one engine. And so if you lose one, uh, we're probably going to do something about it, but it's not generally the end of the world. So um, the helicopter EMS pilots will go straight up. And there's a certain technique to, there's different types of departures, like a class A and a class B or something like that, that it's beyond my pay grade. But long story short, um, it's possible to do that in a Robinson, but you try to avoid through risk mitigation, the risk matrix that, that uh, you could po- possibly lose your engine and you possibly are not high enough to recover that. And that zero G auto rotation um, is possible, but you need altitude. So altitude being your friend. Um, so that's a maneuver. You probably, if you flew enough time in a Robinson in any helicopter, the max performance takeoff and it feels like you're going straight up, but you're not really getting too far up before you're just pushing forward on the cyclic and getting out of there and transitioning to ETL essentially. Okay. Um, so effective transitional lift and you're getting from the the blade, you know, pushing down and the air coming through the blade. And now you get, it feels like a bump in power and the airspeed picks up and you have to push forward through it because the, air, the aircraft wants to lift up the nose pitch up. And uh, a, a difference also with helicopters and airplanes, something that, troubled me as initially a fixed wing pilot moving to rotorcraft was you, when you add power, you know, obviously using different um, inputs on basically the torque pedals, not rudder pedals, uh, at least in Robinson, because based on the way that the, their, the rudder is turning, but you keep that power in and you don't, you don't adjust power on the collective, essentially a manifold pressure as you would potentially make subtle changes on, uh, engine RPM in, a, in an airplane. So that's one thing I kept m- maneuvering that around a lot more. So you kind of, kind of set it and not necessarily forget it, but just hold it there. So, so how um, much, some of those power changes were pretty something I had to work on to, to cure. How much openness do you need? Like clearance wise, if you're setting up like a registered helipad, like that would be like on the sectional chart, fully legit. Um, so think about practical nature of coming to a fly-in and you got rotor wash because all your buddies are in airplanes um, and you have the helicopter. So you want to be a couple rotor widths away in terms of no, some. No, I'm talking like, I'm talking no airport. Like yeah. you want to put a helipad in your backyard. Oh, well, 
I've landed at friends' backyards. Yeah. I just wonder if there's well, like clearance, like the, the airports, you kind of need a three degree glide slope, at least in line with the runway, if not around the airport. I just wonder if oh, there's so, more. Yeah. So thinking, thinking about like your being a good neighbor, like a rotor wash, things like that. So you, you need some room be, between like, like the, there's an airplane that's over there on the ramp that isn't tied down and, or doesn't have the control lock in. So just thinking about that when you're setting down. So in terms of like confined spaces, you can get in and out of rather confined spaces in Robinson, but you have to really plan ahead. And it's kind of a one way in one way out scenario potentially. So think about winds also tailwinds affect helicopters, crosswinds, not as much, but will the FA um, certify like a certified heli deck like in a confined uh, area like that, or do you kind of need somewhat open openness? Now you can, you can land out in the middle of the woods and count as a landing. Yeah. So it's not the, the provisions for airport that's charted. That's beyond any of the scope of my concern ever. Yeah. Um, I'm like saying so, hi- hypothetical. Like I had a, yeah, like I, a I know, I know acre, it's involved like a spare acre. I wanted to like get a heli deck on. I, I just wonder if that'd be like a big enough space. Yeah. To get a certified no, heli deck. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I imagine it's in the FARS in terms of like the provisions to be on a sit, uh, the, a charted sectional. Um, your department of transportation, statewide de- yeah. uh, department of transportation have to get involved to survey the site, have all your obstacle clearance shit involved. And then you'd have to have it like active for so many days, calendar days, months, years, and then get it on the sectional. You got to bribe your tra- how many politicians? Well, yeah, well, that's basically, yeah, boil it down. I really appreciate, you know, the fast track that you're on. Um, Probably a couple, one, two. Okay. Down there, that might be hard to do, though, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't know. Might have to go transgender or something. Oh, well, yeah, the fast track. Yes. Fast track it. Done. Yeah. Well, all right. So in terms of landing landing off site, it's not not really an issue. Break. So. Take a pee break. I'm trying to keep up with the chat. And uh, I, yeah, I, saw some, I need to, it's been two hours, 50 minutes. I need to do the same. Yeah. Rob and I. Go ahead. Elite, yeah, you go, 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 ahead. go solo. You go handle this for a second? I might. Well, no, I can't, but I'll do my best. You figure it out. Okay. I'll try my best. I don't know Rob, why Rob did that, but that's interesting. Nobody's even drinking anything and they're taking a pee break. I don't understand. Must have drank some water, a water bottle before they left. Um. Oh, so many things. No idea. Uh, on Lake Norman, North Carolina. I so I used to be based in Charlotte. Saw Lake Norman a lot. Put a helipad on their boat dock. Total baller. Yeah, that's awesome. Look it up for Aventura. I'll I will look it up. Um, like five minutes south of Hollywood. This time of year, I was about to text this. Um, this time of year, we're down to South Florida a lot more because a lot of people are snowbirds. You know, trying to get south. Um. So yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, figure that out. Um, Rob does not drink beer, really. Yeah, they uh, they probably did get to, that. That was quite an interesting exchange. Let's all talk about helicopters and stuff, which I know nothing about or have any interest about. So we barely even talked about seaplanes, and that was kind of the point of the episode. I don't know. Um, no, they're both on a pee break. They're both on a pee break. 
Andrus. I don't know why he put that. I don't know why he did that to the camera. I'm not really sure. It's not like his bathroom is right there. That's a little weird. It's like you put a little saw. See, now Tyler's doing it. I guess that's what classy people do. Take a collar. Barb saying take a collar, which I don't think there's too much ambiguity as to whom she is talking about. That's up to Rob. That's <laughs> yeah, let's her. let's call Jen because she's working. Yeah. Yes. Well, I still yeah, have not Scott's not Barb. Let's call Jen here. Do you still does Scott still show up on yours? Just with the yeah. three dots. It's three going? dots. Yeah. 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 So yeah, maybe. Oh, also Andrew. Yeah, it'd be funny to get Andrew on because he just did that private check ride and passed. So. Oh yeah, and congratulations! I'm kind of a little bit out of the loop. I just got back from Mexico, so I do have a little, maybe a little bit of an excuse. But yeah, congratulations on that. <clears throat> Bail me out? I, like, what did I do? I don't. I don't just know. being solo. That's oh, what I've done oh, when you've been on your own. Oh. I get on here, but it helps having a proper mic. That's part of the problem when you call in. It's like. Sounds like first time caller, long long time listener. So. Yeah, right, right, right. Hey, Rob, <sighs> um, uh, Barb wants on. I don't what? know how you do that. Um, Barb, Barb, Barb wants on. So, or she said, "Take yeah, a caller number nine. But now, now it seems like people are kind of perking up again. So, Andrew's in here. Yeah. Mike's in here. I don't know who that. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. that works. This is a. Uh, oh, she really? Yeah. Don't she says actually. second wind. Never mind. My win never end. I told my wife about an hour ago. Or oh, another half hour. Yeah, I um actually really want to hear Nicole's story about the golf cart as the neutral party. Kind of biased, probably. No, be on Scott's yeah, side, but a hundred percent biased. She's gonna. But she's Scott. the one. She's the one that didn't bail off. Though that's kind of, I guess, my perspective. I feel like my understanding of energy management. I feel like we made the right call and you being uh, basically a amateur semi-pro race car driver with a ton of experience that you would also understand. And we came to the same conclusion to bail out of this, <laughs> this thing. Not, not going to work out. Yeah, it's not going to work out. Either this whole thing's tipping over into the lake or this canopy is going to depart the golf cart and we're all going to go with it into the lake. Or the pond, it's just there's just <laughs> no scenario that really worked out in our in our favor. So I feel like the more you know, it, like race car stuff, the yeah. the more uneasy you are about all that stuff. Like my brother in law is a perfect example. of This I'll do some stuff where he just it freaks him out. I think unnecessarily. Yeah, the maybe correlation with like piloting some kind of flying thing, and then things on the ground you definitely get into three-dimensional activities with the braking turning and so um a lot of that extends into the, there's the crossover essentially that i found really remarkable but i i just i was more worried about the whole ship going down and and hurting people rather than myself but it would have sucked to like have broken an arm or something but the way that we're at speed on the grass we just slid i'm surprised i'm surprised well, maybe we did but no like notable grass stains from that a too crash no so no no hard. i had grass stains on my shorts i don't i made i made note of like these are not going to wash out but they did i've taken some serious falls in 
in 8A Delta grass. It's it's softer than normal, I feel like. It's more forgiving. Especially when the dirt. grass is burned. Yeah. Yeah, so I got the, the scenario where everyone pieced out, and I was still kind of on West Coast spring. And there I was, like, standing alone, 2 in the morning, in the grass at 8A Delta by myself. Like, I'm not tired yet, and I had to, like, kind of FaceTiming people. Like, hey, how's it going back there? So, yeah, um, like, well, I guess I should go go home now or to the the Motel 6 by the Arby's. Hotel home. glowing through the window. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, man, there's so many. That was a great trip for me. So it was a lot of, uh, I feel like I spent more time traveling there than spending time there, but I've made every ounce of that hey, work. It was awesome. 2024. All right. I want everybody in the chat. At Ada Delta for Precosh 2024. Yeah. I, I don't know how much we're going to handle, uh, how much more we can handle. That's that's my thing. Like just being a uh, host of something, it stresses me out. Yeah. Even the little involvement that I had, it was stressful. So, oh God. Yeah. So I love is it minor detail. It was like the dollar store is just around the corner and like buying a 32 pack at eight in the morning and uh, just Classy. subtle details. Yeah. I was like, dude, th- I'm in Ohio buying 32 pack of Bud Light eight in the morning. But in, in, <laughs> in Ohio though, that's at the dollar general. That's nobody. That's well, an eyelash. Again. So like from a, my, cause you, you, you guys are from Ohio or live in Ohio and like generally explaining the scenario. Like I'm taking vacation. I'm going to Ohio. And people are like, you're what? Like who goes to Ohio? And then, <laughs> So I'm going to go stand out in a grass field with people I've never met from the internet. You know, it is, is pretty funny explaining like the more circumstances involved in it. And yeah. if you look at it from those parameters, like again, you took me in as a complete stranger too. At least we had had recorded a podcast before, but it all worked out beautifully. Like where these people are showing up and everyone got along for the most part. And um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I, the, the whole vibe, I, I was just in love with like everything that was going on. And um, like uh, Lee said, the kindred spirit thing was just like giggle fest. It was hilarious. Just stupid off color comments yeah. that can't make it to the podcast or something all in the, all in the way of fun of just like giving each other shit is it, it was great. The only, well, the only, only get complaint I have time about too. Yeah. The only well, complaint, the only complaint, I have complaint about is yeah. Lee put the tent at the wrong spot. Cause I didn't show up in time. He made the decision on no, his no, no. own. Okay, don't open that can of worms. Don't open that can of worms. So the tent that Lee brought didn't get put up in the <laughs> right place because Rob wasn't there. Oh, all of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I had to yeah, drive from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to make it in time. <laughs> and I stopped at the highest it's point your, in Pennsylvania to take some pictures. Oh, the highest point. That's so imperative. High so point. imperative for two. Uh, 1,500. Gotta catch them all. Yeah. All 50. Gotta catch them all. Yeah, I'm waiting that's for you to Pokemon. go up to. Uh, that's Pokemon. Yeah. Gotta catch them all. Get all the highest yeah, points. Right. Mount Rainier's 14,500 feet in Washington. <laughs> Doing it. Tyler's He'll climbing be out there it with next me. year. Yeah. He'll be out there next year. Oh, yeah. You guys. Yeah. yeah. Do it together. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. I'll be, I'll be the helicopter support crew. All right. Like, you, you That's a good you. place to be for that. Operation. I don't have to climb it. You can just bring me up in the helicopter. That'd be amazing. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so, what, well, I guess what satisfies the criteria? What do you do? Put a, foot, your, put a footprint your, on it. What do you do? What works? You get a half a foot on top 
half of half of a footprint. Some kind of DNA. Disturb the good. surface. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Ty, have All right. Tyler buzz the direction. top, and I kick yeah. the top. You know. Yeah. Right yeah, under the skeg. Call it good. Under the skeg. What are you talking yeah, about? That's is this a, that's a sailboat? A, that's a, yeah, that's a This is a sailboat, term. Rob? So we, not, who, who is the user? Not, I don't know. I don't know. Don't Jody? blame it on them, though. You just said skeg, and you were talking about a helicopter? Yeah, that's on a seaplane. What, uh, what's it called in the helicopter? The little bar thing. It's called the little bar thing. Jen, That's it. Is Jen in the chat still? Help so, me out here. Holotastic. We need what? an expert. We need an expert. Jen, where are you at? Yeah. Where are you at? We, what, are you, what are you talking about? Is there, there's the, the toe of the skid. I'm scrolling the chat here. We know there was, there was something about Jody, and it was says, not that Jody. I feel like it is that Jody by some of the comments. Did you notice that, Lee? Stinger. I think he. Oh, might, I think the, he yeah, the left. stinger and the the very tail, like by the tail rotor. <laughs> the thing. Yeah. You, <laughs> stinger. You said skeg though, didn't you? Yeah, skeg. Yeah, skeg. I'm yeah, a skeg's yachtsman. Part of the float. I'm not a pilot, especially a helicopter pilot. I don't. I see an iPad with a weird. Cylindrical diagram shape on it. I don't know this what whole, I don't know what pe- you're ordering on Amazon, Tyler, but that's not show yeah. appropriate. Skeg. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. That's funny. Skid. I mean, skid. Right? Is that is that skid. What German skid? So the big metal bar thingy. Also, aka the big metal bar thingy. Yeah. How do we even get on this conversation? Why, why I don't are you guys know, but I hate either. helicopters, so it's been fun. You are going to love yeah. helicopters. Been a lot. I yeah. probably would, but I deduced to transfer my ratings <laughs> of what I have into a helicopter would cost me $30,000, so I'm just like not going to do that. Not my problem. Yeah. Yeah, says Scott Boris. Yeah, that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> going 30 miles an hour on a golf cart. Dude. On Next time, oh man! Next time that dude is gonna Scott. That is that dude means Scott. Yeah, that's what I meant, Scott. Now, you next never, time that you never ride with Scott on eight eight Delta property. Well, so that's the problem. Past that's the scenario. 10 at night. That scenario won't. No, no, no. Park. It wasn't ten o'clock at night. It was like six five or six p.m. It doesn't matter. We oh, obviously special would all circumstances. Enough. I don't know why I did. Plenty. Of, yeah, it's before he climbed up into the ceiling and jumped into the foam pit. I wasn't even there for that. I don't remember that. Yes, you were. I have. I think you're on video. Like I, I was filming that whole Allison. That was the thing we never talked about on the show. That I think surprised a lot of people at Precaution. We just took a. We just went to the other side of the pond, and in in one of Gandhi's warehouses, he bought out a foam pit thing and installed it. Trampoline in the. He bought. He bought out a a trampoline park during COVID. And moved the entire trampoline park into the corner of one of his warehouses for motorcycle parts. So we just walk into this door on 88 Delta, and it's a giant foam pit trampoline park, which was fun, I, I think. It's an unexpected surprise for the guests that were there. It won't be a surprise to anyone coming to next Precosh, because you'll hear about it now. But, but yeah, trampoline parks. Um. So anyway, Lee, you were saying 
about some I sort of helicopters. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we're, we're talking helicopter pads now, so maybe you're less annoyed. You're saying you have to have some sort of like use basis for a while before the FA will certify it. <clears throat> Is from what I remember talking about trying to get a grass strip, unapproved strip, uh, private strip uh, on the sectional. There was, if I remember correctly, there was a time period of use, I believe, and I could be wrong, that it maybe it, maybe it was implemented in a different way than I'm thinking, but there seemed to be a time period of use that was a portion of kind of the equation for them putting on the sectional. Um, okay. They would come out, they would survey uh, the... Uh, the, the landing area uh, the, and um, make sure you had all the obstacle clearance requirements, um, which isn't as kind of as hard. It's hard in some ways, but easier than you would think in other ways. Um, they need like 20 to one obstacle clearance slope or a way to mitigate that. So like Scott runs that runs into that at their eight, eight Delta, although it's been an established uh, airfield for a long time. You still run into they that. get away with and, a lot because well, they yeah, were, yeah, the yeah, airport existed before the FAA existed, right? And even if you didn't necessarily have the grandfathered in concept, you can still what you can do is you can just say, okay, the obstacle clearance slope doesn't work for twenty five hundred feet. Although you can mow, get on your mower, get on your skag, and you can mow your twenty five hundred feet. <laughs> the chat reference for people listening right. to audio. Bingo. We're talking about mowers in the chat right now. <laughs> you get on your skag and do your 20, mow your 2,500 uh, feet of runway. Well, yeah, but that doesn't work for your 20 to 1 obstacle clearance slope that the, that the uh, typically Department of Transportation FAA would require. About, uh, basically about a three degree glide path. So when, uh, if it doesn't meet that, what you do is you ultimately say, okay, 2,500 is what we mowed. That's what we think we have. And maybe you kind of sort of have it for takeoff. But then what happens for landing is you work inwards from that until you have a runway that works and so that your threshold matches a 21 obstacle clearance slope. So you can see if you start with 2,500, like let's say you have some tall trees at one end. Well, you're going to start shifting your threshold, your landing threshold, further and further towards the center of the runway until you make that work, until you meet that obstacle clearance requirement of 20 to 1. So you may start with 2,500 feet of mode runway, and that's fine. But by the time you're all said and done, it may end up being 1,800 feet usable for landing. So you have, a, uh, in this case, maybe a 600-foot uh, displace. What's that math? What did I say? 2,500 to 1,800? What's that 700 feet of displaced threshold to make that work. Yeah, it's usable for takeoff because you don't have an obstacle clearance to, to worry about you know, land on, on, uh, on takeoff because you're taking off the other way. But coming into land, everything's kind of predicated on that 20 to 1, which is very close to a 3-degree uh um, like an ILS and I harp on Scott about a three degree glide path. So, um, yeah, you end up shortening your runway to make it, to make it all work. Obviously yeah. you get it too short. 
it's almost not not even a usable runway anymore. So that would somewhat dictate whether it's available to be published on a on a sectional or not. Huh. I just called downstairs to Hellatastic and I ordered a burrito. So oh, watch nice. as as the twelve uh, year old burrito delivery system arrives. Okay. Meaning my child. It's gonna be hilarious. So I did, You'll see a hand extend to a burrito. Nice. I did a um I did some research to try to put a grass strip in down here in Florida if you were to buy enough land to do so in an area that obviously would allow it uh, basically way out in the middle of nowhere. And there's specific criteria that you have to go through the state, I think maybe the Department of Transportation, where um, you'll you have to almost put it in your real estate contract that um, it's contingent on it because they like don't want you buying a piece of land you think can make into a runway. Um, they want you to have it in the paperwork that the sale doesn't go through until it's, I don't know, we need to get Ian Arndt on to help explain this. But it was, it was a very weird regulations that seemed like it was governed more by the state to even get it started. It is it governed go by the state. Yeah. It is governed by the state, the DOT. Yeah. F dot in your case. Okay. F dot. F dot. No O dot. No O dot. Ohio. No more. Not for you. Is it is it W dot out in Washington? I would say okay. dub dot they get, they, is what I would no, say. No, they call it whiz dot. Whiz dot. Like WS, Washington State. Yep. yep. Oh, man. You guys got to be special. You got to put WS. I mean, look at me. Special? <laughs> I, just, I feel special. like there's a, is there another state that's a W here, that like, stole it first? They had to add an S. I wonder what yeah. Wyoming says. It's probably W dot. Y, y dot, probably. <laughs> why does anyone live here, dot? <laughs> I would, Wyoming would probably be awesome to live in. But I don't know. Yeah, there's no one around. Yeah, that, cold that sounds great. That sounds great. Tell me more. Good for you, introvert. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 F dot. Yeah. They would be the ones who would come out, survey, and what they'll they'll come out and they'll survey and be like, okay, here's your twenty to one. Yeah, I know you think you have five thousand feet of runway here, but once you factor in all these obstacles, which it's Florida, all you have is probably trees. Uh, once you factor in obstacles, you only have 4,500 feet or something like that. Yeah. It's not that fourth, big of a deal. For, I, th- I did the math on it. For a 4,000 by 75 foot, just uh-huh. that just that section is exactly seven acres. Really? 4,000 four by 75 foot. Wow. Equates to seven acres. To give you an idea of how much land you actually have to have to have a to like build a decent strip, that's nuts. Yeah, that's nuts. And then, I, like, so my my point is, you have okay a four thousand foot grass runway. Yeah, that gives you some latitude what you're going to put into it. But ultimately, I mean, I guess <laughs> you're South Florida. You think summer maybe it's a little bit damp. It's definitely gonna be hot. It's gonna be humid. It's all the it's this trifecta of high, high, humid that um Tyler was talking about earlier. Although it's not high, the humidity and the 
heat create a high density altitude. Could be worse, definitely. But yeah, I, I, four thousand. I mean, like, what do you want to get in somewhere that doesn't like that requires more than twenty five hundred feet? A uh, barren. Did you On get a, a burrito, Tyler? Did you get a burrito? You got a burrito delivery. Just yeah. one? Yeah. <laughs> just, just one. No churros? Where's the churros? <laughs> Say, where's the churros? Yeah. 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 This is, where's the garnish? <laughs> you did good. <laughs> you see, Mike, oh, I, I, I bring you to this world and you bring me a microwave burrito. That's it. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you, Ella. Do you want to say hi real quick? Right. Just say hi. Far Aim Podcast. And, okay. See ya. <laughs> nice job. That was, nice that job. was, that was your shot. Wow. That's fun. I, Scott, on a side note, I, I, I'm editing. I don't know what week it's going to come out. Eventually it'll come out, but Scott's parenting book he's going to write. It's a good one. I don't know if you remember that from the one stream. That is so sweet of your kid to just bring you food at all. Yeah, I called Jen. I'm like, have you guys had dinner? Because I bought some frozen enchilada stuff to put in the oven, just let them like sort it out. And it was like mm-hmm. 80 minutes, this and that. And they realized later how long it was going to take. And like, again, I started doing this about four in the afternoon. So nice. I'm, it's now almost eight. I'm like, I'm hungry. And I've had nothing but this Bud Light lime. <laughs> so yeah. I'm getting my third wind. So let's, let's do hour number four. I've eaten like Dude. two pieces of toast the last two days, but I'm like a food camel. I can go a long time. It's not healthy. Yeah, you're though. also real freaking skinny too. Yeah. Well, I forget to eat for days. Here's my all that cocaine. Ass. My diet plan. Yeah. Well, yeah, that'll do it. God, <laughs> if I could just lose ten pounds, but I'm incapable of it. All I want to do is eat and drink. That's all. That's pretty much my two favorite things. Yeah, that <laughs> episode that was released today. You're talking about not wanting to go to Oshkosh, watch it in the airplanes. You're like, I just want to go to there and drink. Me? Is that what so, I said? Yeah. Yep. That is fact. I'm probably in the same inebriated state that I was in when I said that, and it still holds true. I like airplanes. I much rather drink than fly. I much. I mean, yeah. Like it's I, just, I, airplanes are not I, fun to way, me anymore. Well, I'm that way with like any sporting event or anything significant. Is not about watching the event. It's about to hang out and the camaraderie and the socialization. It's like that's kind of the, the precursor to Osh Precosh was the like just there to socialize rather than like, Hey, let's like, actually, I don't think we talked about airplanes at all. I maybe a little bit, but it was just BSing. It was just awesome. But, um, Rob is now out of the frame, but he was commenting on, he went to like sun and fun or something and found the beer tent. And he said he never left and then like was driven home. And that's when Eccles said like in an ambulance, <laughs> <laughs> So not that I've ever done anything like that. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah, we're uh, man. I don't know. I, was, I don't know. Rob, I was talking about your um sudden fun statement about finding the beer tent and then having never left, but it was by de- donation only, so they couldn't p- properly sell the the beer. So. It's donation only, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then you you uh just found that location and never left and got a ride home. That was incredible. It's the greatest fun son ever. 
the only one I've been to, so it was the, technically it was the worst as well. But tomato, tomato. Um, so fundamentally, there's actually a lot more to talk about seaplane. So hopefully, maybe fill that in in a future thing. Not not a full episode, but um, I was looking through the notes from the Kenmore PDF, and there's like so many things we didn't even talk about. But I think oh, no, it's important, to like yeah, we flood fill, like how 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 is seemingly short and abbreviated this um, rating is, but there's actually a ton of uh, uh, skills and things that are learned, new skills in particular, new words. Let's do it. Like, yeah, not yeah. tonight, but, but yeah, not yeah. another episode. Not. Yeah, we could do. I, I love seaplanes. In so particular, more episodes. T- talking about plow turns and how dangerous they are. That was, I think is really important to note on something I didn't, I was not aware of just the instability of the aft CG and things mm. or the, the, the instability of the roll actually in particular, like it, it, you come to a scenario where you need to get out of there, wherever that is. It's, it's enticing to do a plow turn because you, you keep weather veining. If you're trying to idle through that, you just can't, you don't have enough authority in the water rudder to turn. So instead you, you get into the plow to try and force it, but you're at the risk of rolling the aircraft. And there's a plenty of tutorial, not tutorials, plenty of examples um, on YouTube of that occurring and even in larger aircraft too. So it's a good way to get hurt quick. I mean, are you trying like a downwind plow turn? What do you just, I, yeah, yeah. The, the most dangerous turn is downwind to upwind mm. and you start you get centrifugal forces working against each other. And then ultimately plow turn just in that, that interim stage between the idle um, taxi and the step taxi, the stability of the center of gravity moves aft into like the really tapered area of the float. And it gets, it's just barely hanging on. So when you're moving forward in the plow, you're going to be moments later in the step. It's not that big a deal, but you start adding a centrifugal force. It's a major component of turning these seaplanes on the water. And part of uh, the concern with, the when you're in a step turn, like putting positive aileron control into the direction you want to turn before you start adding in the rudder input for the water rudder and air rudder combined. So there's stuff yeah. in there. I think it's worth like having probably a, a CFI seaplane person explain further and in, in depth. But it, there was a point of concern where at Kenmore it's prohibited. Just plow turns aren't a thing. So yeah no we did we did plow turns just to kind of like it's a little bit inverse of what you said you have more of the just really dumbing it down you have more of the float or the airplane in general out of the water so it kind of allows you to turn downwind a little bit easier than than anything else but like if you're going to do step turns downwind which is i mean if you have if you have the room and you have to pad it accordingly and maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe it makes that body of water uh, not usable for this purpose. But if you want to, if it's a confined area takeoff and which is something we practice a lot, um, you know, if you start downwind and then you make this turn, cause you want to take off into the wind, just like anything else you make this turn. So you're going downwind. You want to make this turn into the wind. So you have centrifugal force and the wind trying to throw that down or sink that downwind float. You don't, obviously that's bad. (laughs) So something I feel like you need to consider is when you notice that that float is starting to get buried, you want to have a little bit of excess room that you can turn 
into that downwind float. It's opposite of what you would think. You want to turn into that downwind float. So now that you kind of, I'm kind of, I'm not, it's not the right physical way of talking about it. But what that does, that kind of evens out the, the physics. So now if you turn, okay, so you, you're making this downwind turn. You're, you're flying or you're on the step going downwind. You want to make this turn into the wind to take off, right? Because you're in a confined area or confined like body of water. You see that that downwind float is starting to get buried because now you have wind and centrifugal force burying that downwind float. What you do is you actually turn into that float a little bit, or at least release some of that back pressure in that turn. Um, so that now that float, instead of being centrifugal force throwing outside the turn, you're actually going to make the turn. Uh, um, I don't know how to describe it. You're going to throw it inside the turn, basically relieving some of the weight on that float. You're making the float. Uh, basically come back up but you need to have the latitude and have that radius and that arc of the turn to make that work out if it's super confined that might not be possible so factor that in and i suppose that just takes experience i like i couldn't do it like i definitely couldn't do it today i probably couldn't do it then i mean i know we practice a lot of stuff and they like showed me a lot of stuff the two different instructors i had um but it's counterintuitive. You bury a float, you turn into the float. And that would that will make the centrifugal force shift inward the turn. I'm using kind of extreme terms, but that'll make that centrifugal force shift inward and even out the plane. So but what that would do is that would widen your arc of your turn. Wow. Yeah, it's really confusing. <clears throat> I'm like confused reading it and thinking through it right now. Um, That's true, though. Think that, of a sailboat. Was, you, you like yeah. you're tacking or you're going straight at it like a buoy. You see it out there, and you have this for some odd reason. You have this gust of wind that's about to like, and it's going to do what you want it to do. In a sailboat, is it's going to start to to turn the sailboat on its side. Well, what can you do? You can turn into that that new wind. And what happens? The sailboat doesn't ever turn over. You just go with it. And what that does is that drops that into the wind, that upwind edge of the boat is not gonna con- is not gonna rise. It's gonna go down, which means the downwind one is gonna rise. It's gonna do the opposite of the upwind. So that ca- not that know. Jody, who I think is actually that Jody, was in the. Co- comment sections way like two hours ago talking about how none of us have ever actually accusing sailboat us without a motor a accusing us of not yeah I've been on a sailboat with sailing. a motor I've been on a sailboat with a motor and I meant to bring up I Scott I, I had a sailboat for a summer the Olberg 30 30 foot Olberg and Scott and I would go out and Gandhi would go out in it too which was kind of funny and I we can't would even imagine we would get it out of the river, obviously, with the motor. Yeah. And then we would yeah. just figure out whatever would make the boat go as fast as possible. Uh-huh. And we do that for, I don't know, twenty minutes. And then we just bring all the sails down, fire the motor back up. Motor back. <laughs> Yeah. No no ability to sail at all. 
Like we would just it's the same concept though. We would get the boat going to where it was leaning over and we felt like we were doing something cool for a little bit. And then once we were kind of over it, we had no idea how to actually sail it back to the inlet of the river. So we would just take the sails down and, and fire the motor back up. And yeah, that was our sailing experience. There you per- have Perfect it. segue into sailing and seaplane. Something that again, thought was interesting is say sailing is kind of more of an emergency procedure in seaplane where you're going in reverse. So you've now lost your engine in a way that you, or, you know, typically is only used in this scenario because you, you just, it's easier to drive using forward propulsion. So to your destination, but let's say you, you parked in the center of a lake and you lost your engine or it's not firing up whatever the battery's dead. So sailing is a technique where you're essentially using the, um, the weather veining properties of the aircraft to, to move backwards into the location you, you kind of want to steer, but it's rear steer. So yeah, um, it, it's opposite rudder and opposite aileron inputs, the direction you want to move, which is again, like a, a confusionator in terms of like all these centrifugal forces. And there's a lot of, of lecturing and in, in, involved with the seaplane dynamics and physics. It's really interesting. Um, but the sailing part, apparent, apparently you can log sailing time when you're doing that to add hours. And a person I know claims it's a great way to build sea time plane. Like you're kidding. Oh like sitting my. on oil. So that's a gray area I don't want to necessarily deal with because it, it's not necessarily on the hobs or any of that tack time. But yeah, um, that that's a claim that by a person sense, I know. Though. That makes sense. Yeah, because you're operating. Absolutely. So, you're probably good to go. It's similar to like yeah. the purpose if, of flight. Purpose if you're, of flight. If you're, at a, if you're at a giant airport, like a controlled towered airport, and it takes you 45 minutes to get to the runway taxing, as long as you're in... You didn't even have to take off. I mean, they could shut the runway yeah. down after you'd been in line for forty minutes. If oh, you were, yeah. if you were intending on taking off, yep, and didn't actually take off, you could log like all of it. You could log it hours, yeah, hours, even if you never left the runway. So I feel Bingo. like this is the seaplane version of that, though. It is. So that that yeah that weird gray area exists in in land flying as well. Right. Yeah. yeah it, the 100%. example, Jen, I think, was uh, getting tailwheel taxi time in a, in a tailwheel aircraft, and they didn't have the intention to fly. So it was a scenario mm-hmm. where they didn't get to log. She didn't get to log that. Nope. Um, so that, it, you know, it's not a big deal when you, you taxi generally to the, the runway to go with intention to fly, and you tend to pair that up versus minusing that time you did spend sitting there on the ramp doing run-ups and all that. Um, so well, all you, all you would have done is to do one takeoff and that could have all counted. Not that it matters yeah. for most people at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah. I, I was thinking like more grossly and people, yeah, just fabricating logbook entries and like the, the kind of self-policing pilots put into a scenario where, um, there's a bit of trust into like, did anyone add an extra 10th on every single one of these hours to accelerate their, their logbook going up? But there's a little details in there as far as like, I'm sure in an audit of, um, during the hours of like primary flight training and private and this and that, where I find it interesting in terms of employability, at what point do you get to that? Um, cause at precaution, uh, Chris came out 
there's some discussion about logbook time, this and that, and just like, oh no, um, I think it was Jared. Jared wanted, yeah, Jared wanted us to sign his logbook, and then Lee was pushing back against that because, like, no, if you're looking to get into some kind of commercial operation, there's just you're going to get your logbook audited at some point. So I have that as an overlying reason to make sure that like everything I put in there is you know authentic. And I think you even sign every page to certify that anyway. But um, yeah, I just generally presume that every pilot operating acting as PIC is honest about the hours, but it's just little stuff with like seaplanes and that sailing thing seems a little bit odd to log time, but you know, when you do two hours sailing, that would be excessive versus like, Hey, it's 20 minutes from the shore. So was it like 0.3? So yeah, right. I feel like, yeah, when they drafted the legalese like that, I feel like they were just like, okay, you're, doing seaplane time for that 20 minutes, they weren't really anticipating somebody going for like an hour or multiple hours and being able to log I, that. Yeah. The Hobbs time running because the engine's running and I'm like renting an airplane. I'm being charged for that Hobbs time. I'm locking it, you know? Well, uh, that changes things yeah. significantly. Yep. Yeah. If you're paying, for, in the, all if you're that, paying for the rental. Well, yeah, but the Hobbs isn't running. If the engine's off, and you're still logging seaplane. That's a little bit of a hack. And I, how could you, as an FAA inspector, ever be like, "Oh yeah, you like"? If you were to witness that happen, be like, "That is valuable time because I don't even know how to do that." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that is valuable. Like that's sailing, <laughs> especially it's compared not- to like the fixed wing, like land version of like the taxi time intending to fly, even if you don't have it taking off. I feel like the seaplane time is way more valuable if you're drifting and feeling those controls sailing, and stuff. Sailing. We're not drifting. Sailing. We're sailing. Rob. What, you're not Come freaking on. sailing. This isn't the... Yeah, you, you are. Know. You're using an air foil. <laughs> Hold on. No, you, no, no. You are exactly you sailing. Get out of here. You are exactly sailing, Rob. You're using an airfoil <laughs> on the aircraft to move the aircraft. Okay. That's exactly sailing. You're using an airfoil Where do I lock down that halyard line, Lee? Where do I? I don't know what a halyard. Where do I pull is. that jib? Yeah, this in. is the Farian okay. podcast, sir. They're we all talk cables that are internally that, mounted on the structure. Is this a beam reach I'm sailing on, or what? I don't what's know what the hell you're talking here. about. I'm putting the okay. upwind aileron up, is what I'm doing if this I want is, to go that way. And then opposite that look Lee like gave into said. the camera it was classic. It what's is. Up? That look Lee gave into the camera was classic. I I almost want to pull up the uh, stream later and just screenshot that. I'm that looking like, right at Rob. You say? I'm not, yeah, lo- yeah. I'm not yes, looking exactly. at the, yeah. yeah. I'm looking yeah. right at you, Rob. Now, somebody right. accused, yeah, that was great. I, I looked up and somebody accused me of looking at, staring at chat and like, I wasn't cha- I wasn't staring at the I chat. Know. I was staring I'm, at I'm Tyler doing his monologue. I have three monitors I'm looking at. It is, si- this, yeah, I guess most people don't chat. realize what you're looking <laughs> at. Yeah, but yeah, it's definitely sailing. You're using an airfoil to move a craft. That is sailing. Okay. Anyway, it's 11 o'clock. It Florida, is. Ohio time. It's, time, it's time for So that. we're out. Sounds like a you problem. We are yeah, out. Well, it is a me problem. I'm feeling it. We're out. That was awesome. Okay. All right. Thanks, three hours, Tyler. 31 Appreciate minutes. Appreciate it. Yeah. Everybody you, in the chat, thank you for sticking it out. Appreciate yep. it. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for joining. Boop. See ya. Later. Yep. See you guys. Thanks, Pilot Ground. Take care.